VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, February the 2nd. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams, he's the producer of the program. You'll be speaking with David when you give us a call to get in the queue and on the air. So, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So, frigid cold night here in this part of the province overnight hit about minus 17 without any impact of the additional wind chill factor. And, you know, you can't help but think about it. You know, it's one thing to be tucked in nice and warm and cozy in your own bed, but how many people just did not have a place to lay their head last night? And I know we talk about homelessness, and so we should. I mean, it's a basic human right, I would suggest. And the most recent numbers just in the city alone is at least 231 people are homeless. And, you know, if the shelters are over capacity, people would show up, and as opposed to being able to come in, get warmed up, have a cup of tea, have somewhere safe to sleep, the only option available sometimes is to give them blankets and some warmer clothes and a toque or something to spend the night outdoors. Boy, oh boy, I can't believe that. Anyway, so today's Groundhog Day. Oh, I find it a little bit foolish. Maybe some people really appreciate the tradition, which stems from the Pennsylvania Dutch superstition. You all know the deal between Shebenakadee Sam and Punxsutawney Phil and whatever the case may be. So yeah, Groundhog Day. And I heard Geraldine Mackey refer to this earlier. It's a Candlemas. Candlemas is the presentation of Jesus at the temple, right? The Feast of the Presentation. It's the one of the oldest feasts of the Christian church. It's been celebrated since the 4th century A.D. So there you go. A little bit of sports note uh, to kick it off. You've heard me talk about a young man named Seth Hyde. He's a 14-year-old uh, who lives here in St. John's, and he has now begun to ply his trade as a burgeoning play-by-play hockey announcer and maybe other sports. He's done a lot of cool stuff, certainly a lot of stuff with us at the Avalon Celtics, and he's even called a pro game with the Newfoundland Growlers. He really does have a career ahead of him, but now he's in Florida. He's in Florida at the All-Star Game weekend. So not only taking in the action for All-Star Weekend, but pretty sure the cat is out of the bag. Anyway, here it comes. He is one of a select few youth between the ages of 13 and 17 who have been invited to be part of the Commissioner's Youth Advisory Board. So it's called Power Players Youth Advisory Board. And so what they're doing is they're picking the brains of young hockey fans as to exactly what keeps them engaged in the sport, what kind of tweaks they'd like to see, whether it be with the production quality on television or what have you. But Seth Hyde, I mean, he's got the world by the tail. Unbelievable stuff. Good for him. He's a really pleasant young man. So that's terrific stuff. Also today in history, February the 2nd, 1949, the great Ben Hogan. I mean, certainly one of the legendary names of the sport. Hogan was in a very serious auto accident. He went head-on into an oncoming Greyhound bus, broke his collarbone, pelvis, left ankle, a rib, and if it wasn't for the fact he dove across the front seat to try to protect his wife, he probably would have been impaled and killed by the steering column. The engine came back into the uh, compartment of the Cadillac he was driving, and the steering column went right through the front seat. So that was, I guess, dodging the bullets, so to speak. Hogan's recovery was incredible. So that happened in February. He didn't get back out to even play a recreational round until late that year. And even after the recovery, he came on to win another 13 times. So, you know, we saw the Tiger Woods recovery and back to the top. And the great Ben Hogan, that accident happened today in 19. 
49, and I see a lot of uh, excited Canada Games athletes prepping. It's only just a couple of weeks away before they head off to the Canada Winter Games on Prince Edward Island, and for the first time ever, we're competing in the snowboard competition. I would imagine, I don't know who these athletes are, it's our first time competing in that discipline, but you imagine they must have close proximity to a hill to get in some runs, to get some final tune-up going, and it looks like Marable's got some more runs open, so I won't be surprised to know that some of them are on those particular slopes. All right, I also heard Brian Madour talk about this in the newscast. And it's the Bally Haley Clove Valley land swap deal. It's a little bit confusing from the outside looking in. So a part of it stems from the fact that there's been so many complaints from residents that have homes alongside the golf course, with all the golf balls that end up hitting their home and potential for personal injury. And, I mean, I get it. You know, you look at some of the prestigious golf courses around the country and around the world. A home along the course is a lifestyle statement, right? It's really quite tony surroundings. In addition to that, and this is not to be unfair and to criticize any of these homeowners because no one wants golf balls banging off the windows and banging off the siding all the time. But when you buy a house on a golf course, you think that there might be a few shanks end up in your backyard. So with Ballyhaley needing to reroute a bunch of holes to shorten the golf course, the expense associated with it, they have struck a deal to swap land, and they get $5 million on top of the land swap. So eventually, Ballyhaley would have had to reroute the golf course out of any really practical want for recreational or amateur golfers to play it. So here comes the move. We really don't know what the owners of Clovelly have in mind for that prestigious prime real estate where Ballyhaley's golf course is. But it looks like that deal is going to make its way through after the Supreme Court refused the grant, uh, to grant an injunction to stop the deal. Problem for the, uh, the curlers. So there's some 65 members of that curling club. That's not going to be in existence any longer. No plan to build a curling club on the Clovelly site. But if you're a member of either or and or a resident in the area, we can take it on and we can talk about it. Yesterday we had uh, Eddie Joyce on. Eddie's the independent member for Humber Bay of Islands. And there's this one issue that he's been doggedly chasing for quite a while, and that's regarding the backlog and the wait times for people in his area to get cataract surgery. So there's a lot to that. For starters, I don't really understand why there would be a hard cap on the number of procedures that doctors in the area could perform, and they could clear up that backlog relatively quickly if they were given the opportunity to do so. But there's a bunch of different troubling factors you know, because not only will your eyesight continue to deteriorate, but someone sent this link along, and it's a 2022 study uh, published in a peer-reviewed medical journal that says removing cataracts was significantly associated with the lowering the risk of dementia development. Patients who had undergone cataract surgery had a 29% lower rate of dementia. So it looks like there's a very much a direct link there. So, you know, we talk about preparations for into the future with whatever the case may be, the aging demographic, infrastructure, whatever we're talking about, because preparation is always less expensive and less chaotic than 11th hour decision making. On the front of dementia, the numbers are really quite stark. Back in 2022, back in, pardon me, in 2020, there were some 600,000 Canadians living with dementia. According to the Alzheimer's Society of Canada, they expect that number to almost double by 2030. So we know all the different preparations that have to take place, whether it be to accommodate aging in place in your own home and or long-term care beds. And yes, the numbers of people with dementia in the country and in this province. So the, the story that I read this morning, and this gets to be really tangly, 
but it's, I'm sure, a conversation that's being held and had in many households right across the province. You know, whether it be someone with dementia. Now, there's a tool out there that the Alzheimer's Society has regarding when it's time to stop driving. For seniors, one of the last pieces of independence is the ability just to get in their own vehicle and do their own thing. Go to the club, go to the shop, visit their friends, whatever the case may be. And you know how difficult that conversation is the vast majority of the time. Some people recognize it and they get a fright and say, well, okay, maybe I should stop driving. And it's not just about dementia patients either, but in the world of dementia, the Alzheimer's Society has a tool called Driving and Dementia Roadmap. It's a website they've created. It's got worksheets and videos and all kinds of different materials to help understand the risks associated with driving as dementia, the symptoms become worse. They worsen. So between dementia and other issues, whether it be just, you know, even at my age, my reaction time is not what it was 10 years ago. So I know how many seniors out there, they don't want anybody to tell them that they can't get behind the wheel any longer. They appreciate that independence. They want to be able to do their own thing on their own schedule, not to be dependent on anybody else for anything as fundamental as going to the shop for a two liter of milk or to visit their buddy or go to a game of cards. But those, those discussions, I'm sure they happen, and they happen all the time. Anyway, you want to talk about it. We can do it. So let's get into some price-related matters. For the life of me, I don't really necessarily, necessarily understand just how many people yesterday on their social media platforms, in particular Facebook, encountered a post that said, beware or warning, price of gas going to spike 55 cents overnight. You know, I don't know where people get some of that information and why they, you know, I guess they're trying to be helpful to give people fair warning that maybe it's a good uh, day to get out and get some gas. But it turns out, and this is pretty much on the numbers that we heard yesterday during the program, is the price of gas is down. Almost three cents a liter, good thing. Diesel dropped almost six cents. Furnace oil decreased by about five cents. Stove oil fell about seven and a half cents. Propane up a bit, about 1.7 cents. So I guess some good news versus what was some people who were pretty stressed out yesterday thinking that there was going to be that type of increase in the price of fuels. Anyway, and on that front, just a very quick note. You know, there's all kinds of talk about where a gouge may be. And fair enough. You know, profit margins, whether it be at the grocery store, and there's all kinds of forecasts out there that say that prices of food will escalate. For starters, at Loblaws, where they had the price freeze in place, they said they'd leave it there until the end of January. Well, here we are, the 2nd of February, so you might see some increases there. But in the prices of fuels, ExxonMobil, all right, big operator here in this province, they posted a profit, a net profit of, uh, in 2022 of $56 billion. They were raking in $6.3 million per hour last year. Not only a company record, but a historic high for the Western oil industry. Shares way up. It looks like there's going to be more money spent on exploration and production. They rebounded quite a long way last, yeah, last year with well in excess of 20, uh, $25 billion in those costs. Looks like there's going to be more again this year, but profits of $56 billion. And in Europe, of course, in the European Union, They've taken that conversation all the way to what they call a windfall profit tax. And last year, the EU collected $1.3 billion from ExxonMobil in that said tax. So anyway, you want to take it on. Happy to go down that path today. How are we doing on the phone, Dave? But in the grocery store world, you know, there are lots of reasons why. And profit margins are really not that high with the major grocery chains. There's all kinds of issues with their distributors, what have you. 
But, you know, even if you look at the amount of produce that Canada imports for even just from California in the Salinas Valley, they had an extended drought and then they had a bunch of flooding and a variety of different problems with a number of different crops. So there's lots of reasons as to why we spend so much in the grocery store, but it doesn't make me feel any better, nor I'm sure it doesn't make you feel any better either. All right, this story here, I see some people mocking the fact that it's been covered, but I think it's bigger than just one family's struggles. That would be Tony and Anne-Marie Norman out in Gander. So they had planned to renovate their kitchen, create their dream kitchen. They were going to do it twice, once in the upstairs, one downstairs for their son. They've been living in this bungalow for 30 years. The kids are grown and all successful. They said, well, now's the time, like many of us would have in uh, bungalows like mine, which is about 50-odd years old and desperately needed a renovation. Remember back early in 20, or I guess the middle of 2020, the province had a very generous program out there for home renovation. You know, you could get a re- rebate up to $10,000 from, uh, from the provincial government, pardon me. And a lot of people took advantage of it. It became very difficult to get a contractor. It became extremely difficult to secure appliances. There was all sorts of reasons as to why that was the case. But for the Normans, their problem stems with they ordered from Swedish giant IKEA. IKEA stopped shipping large orders to this province, and so they've been left in a lurch. They don't have their cabinets. They've been planning this for over a year, and apparently the house is absolutely full with lumber and boxes and all the rest of it. And some people are scoffing it as a real news story, but I think it can extend beyond simply the Normans. And it's too bad. I really wish they were, weren't were being uh, treated like this by IKEA, which is a shameful way for a company to behave. And they suggest, well, the Normans should just go to Halifax and get it. Yeah, I mean, that's just dreadful. But I think it speaks to how we all approach the renovations. You know, whether it be the jobbers, people willing to work for cash, and all the legalities and liabilities that come with that, and then there's the fly-by-night contractors who want a big deposit up front, large cash deposit before they even begin the work. And sometimes that work never gets completed first or last. So, and then it's where you source whatever it is, an appliance or lumber or cabinets or countertops, whatever the case may be. It is a tricky world out there. And so it's too bad for the norms. I wish that wasn't the case for them. But I think it's just a helpful reminder on all those fronts who the contractor is, whether or not they want a big deposit, whether or not they want to work for cash and all the workers' compensation issues that may stem from it, and yes, where do you try to buy the product? Anyway, we're talking about big contracts. With interest, followed along a bit yesterday with one of the government committees about consulting contracts. And the real hot one here is McKinsey & Company, which we've engaged here in this province. They've got some pretty significant baggage. But the way that the federal liberals are using McKinsey, I think, is highly questionable. So it doesn't matter, you know, Mr. Poliev, the new Conservative Party leader, he's really going after the federal government on this particular front? Fair enough. The total of contracts that have gone out the door since uh, Justin Trudeau became the prime minister and the liberals were the governing party, they accumulated about $100 million worth of contracts. That is fairly rich stuff. Compare it back to the nine years of Prime Minister Harper and only $2.2 million was afforded to McKinsey and Company. So the questioning yesterday came uh, to Dominic Barton. Mr. Barton was a former global managing director. He was actually an advisor to the former conservative government as well. He served on a special committee with uh, then finance minister Bill Morneau, so he's been around. He relocated to Asia in 1996, and he swears up and down he had nothing to do with these contracts. He wasn't involved. The questioning about whether or not he's a personal friend of the prime minister and up and down, that gets into the personality part of it. But I think there's always, rightfully so, questions about how much government work gets outsourced. 
how much money is spent on consulting firms. There's been lots of stories in just the last couple of years about consulting companies getting contracts from the government when people have personal relationships with the leaders of these uh, marketing and or consulting firms and members of the cabinet, which is ridiculous and it's disgraceful. And some of these people don't deserve a job as a minister of the crown in Canada. One of the final comments coming yesterday from one of the members of the committee was not just about McKinsey and how much we spend on uh, outside consultants, but he wants a full-on study of a bunch of them. Deloitte, PricewaterhouseCoopers, Accenture, KPMG, Ernst & Young. We've used many of those here in this province as well. Sometimes a cold set of eyes outside government is probably a good idea. Oftentimes it's used as a way to defend government from decision-making. You know, they'll say, well, we've got the experts in the field. They looked at our issue, this was the recommendation, and so we're going with it. When, in fact, we should have enough brain power and horsepower, whether it be at the prov provincial level or the federal level, to reduce the amount of money we spend in these external consulting contracts. Those are whopping big numbers. Anyway, a couple of quick ones. You want to touch base on the MUNS Faculty Association and their ongoing strike, of course, began on Monday. You know, we hear a lot about what the university wants and what the uh, Faculty Association wants. But there's a bunch of students and lecturers and other unions on site, whether it be NAEP and, of course, the lecturers' union and the uncomfortable nature of crossing picket lines, even though they're obliged to keep things going, like for the NAEP members, maintenance, food service, and the like. For the lecturers, they still have students that they need to service. They need to be in the classroom or the lecture hall to deliver the curriculum, so there's a lot floating around there. And whether it be the 70 nursing grads that may indeed see their semester uprooted, but there's a lot to that. If you want to take it on, we can do it. Hopefully, we're going to get uh, John Norman, the mayor of Bonavista. They're taking the bull by the horns in an effort to recruit doctors to the community. I'll leave it to the mayor Norman to describe exactly what they're doing. And uh, let's see here. One quickie before we go. Oh, this is something else. So remember when Baird Cottage burnt down in early December? It was destroyed. So it was a beautiful heritage building. It had fallen into awful disrepair. At one point, a very stately home. In its past glory, it was really remarkable. So the conversation can indeed be had about preserving heritage because when it's gone, it's gone forever, and we don't need to become a vinyl-siding jungle here in this province. But the investigation into the cause of the fire has been closed. You know, there was no power going to the Baird Cottage, as far as I know. So the RNC can't come up with the cause, and whoever other investigators, whether it be from the regional fire department or what have you, but no cause? Hmm... We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. You know the deal. It only happens with you in the queue and on the air. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number one. We're talking food as uh, absolutely as we should. Let's go see. Uh, Laura Heath is the project manager for Common Ground, and she joins us on one. Good morning, Laura. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Good morning. How are you? Excellent. How about you? Good. Thank you. Now, Common Ground's been around, I think, first incorporated back in 2011, but Mark Wilson sent along a link yesterday about a new project you're working on. It's not fully operational yet, but before we get into that, who is Common Ground? What do you do? Common Ground, as you mentioned, was incorporated in 2011. Uh, we promote, support, and implement environmentally and economically sustainable community development initiatives here in the province. Uh, and our focus is on local food, green technology, and ecological restoration. Um, currently, our main focus is looking at some of the challenges that we face in uh, growing food here in Newfoundland and how can we 
overcome them. Uh, our first project was the St. John Safer Soil Project that looked at the issue of, uh, of uh, the lead in the soil in St. John's. And uh, that was at a time when there was a lot of interest in community gardening and backyard gardening. So we led a uh, a program that uh, did education around that issue, uh, around growing food safely. Um, and uh, other projects that we've done have looked at uh, how we can address our limited agricultural land, get better yield by using innovative uh, soil amendments and um, organic soil amendments and uh, looking also at how we can address our short growing season by using sustainable greenhouse technology and that's the, the big project that we're working on now is to build a year-round greenhouse in Tibi Park. Yeah, and it, it sounds pretty fascinating. We'll get into the liquid foam insulation here now in a second. Uh, mm-hmm. Tell us more about the St. John Safe for Soil. You know, for starters, there's not a real wealth of soil anyway in this part of the mm-hmm. province and in the downtown area in particular, elevated lead uh, was found. So you, you mentioned backyard farming. I think that's becoming, again, more and more popular, you know, given the fact that walking into the grocery store is a real shock to the financial system. So what can you tell us about what you found when you examined the soil and what can be done about it? Uh, well, we uh, one of our projects was to uh, we had a, a demonstrate an urban demonstration garden behind the gathering place for a number of years where we would do garden tours and workshops and uh, promote safe gardening in these in areas that had elevated soil lead levels. And one of the main ways that you can address that issue is to grow food in raised beds and containers if you know that there is uh, lead in your backyard. Um, educating yourself on where um, the more the higher levels could be found is, is important, like uh, especially in these older houses in St. John's. Along the drip lines of houses, uh, you might find like a lot of uh, uh, chips of paint from the old lead paint that people would be using years ago. Um, so, you know, you may not grow food right up along the side of your house. Um, and also the different varieties of food that you can grow. Some, some, um, a lot of plants probably don't absorb lead, uh, and and it's even debatable whether um, plants would absorb lead if there's a lot of organic matter in the soil. Um, you can add organic matter to your soil. What that does is it, it, it binds lead in the soil, so it's, it doesn't become bioavailable. Um, you can um, add lime to your soil. That also reduces lead uptake. But also, like certain plants, like um, uh, you know, root crops, if you're growing them directly in the soil, you'd want to make sure that they were peeled and washed, you know, um, so the, the surface uh, dirt is, is more of a concern um, than the actual uh, uptake in some cases. But it, there's a lot of different factors uh, in, in planning for a lead-safe yard, um, keeping play areas covered with, like, um, you know, sod or or various types of ground cover is also important for play areas so that young children are not coming in contact with lead. Uh, but we've got a lot of information on our website um, from the Common Ground website. You can find a link to a lot of information on that topic. What's biochar? Biochar is a really interesting organic soil amendment that's been getting a lot of attention around the world um, for its ability to increase yields that you can get from your, your produce. Um, while reducing the need for water and fertilizers uh, and other inputs, you know, that cost money for farmers, um, and also builds healthy soil. So you're creating a, a really diverse 
uh, uh, ecology of microorganisms in your soil that are beneficial for, for plants and, and just beneficial for, for all the life in your soil. Um, it, uh, it's also being touted as a really uh, viable way to sequester carbon in soil. Um, and reduce the amount of carbon that is emitted into the atmosphere from or, uh, the decay of organic waste. So you can actually um, make biochar from all kinds of different things that, uh, that ordinarily might break down and emit carbon into the atmosphere. How commonly is it? Uh, how commonly is it used? Because you know it makes reference to uh, organic soil amendments. So would be organic farmers using this, or even more traditional forms of uh, agriculture in the province? Is it being used? Because it sounds like it has nothing but upside. Yeah, there are. There have been a couple of studies. I know there was one in Labrador. Uh, we did a field trial in, uh, over at the gathering place when we were located over there. Um, and uh, I know there is interest here amongst the agricultural community. We, we uh, led a weekend-long workshop uh, a few years ago on that topic. Um, it's made by essentially baking organic matter at a, a low temperature uh, and a low oxygen environment. So instead of turning to ash, it turns into this very porous structure um, that creates a, a, a habitat for microorganisms and, can, and, and, a, and a porous structure that can retain moisture. Um, but yes, there, there, I know there is interest in the province, um, and I'm not sure what is happening recently with that, but I know there were some studies being done. Let's get around to the reason why we invited you on this morning to talk about <laughs> the construction of a year-round liquid foam insulated demonstration greenhouse. Okay, so mm-hmm. it's going to be up in Pippi Park. Is this a hydroponic operation? No, it's not. Okay. So what is it? Uh, it's a 20 by 40 year-round greenhouse. Um, it essentially is a greenhouse within a greenhouse. So there's two layers of frames and two layers of plastic. And uh, at the in the cavity at the top of the greenhouse, there are foam generators very similar to uh, firefighter foam nozzles that inject a liquid foam into the cavity. Um, they're basically soap bubbles, and uh, these bubbles have uh, insulating properties um, that uh, provide a, an R30 blanket around your greenhouse so that you can grow food um, in the cold. Um, we'll be combining that technology with thermal, thermal energy storage in the greenhouse so that um, uh, that it will direct warm air that's collected during the day into tanks underground uh, that could uh, contain water uh, that could then um, eject that heat into the greenhouse at night, for example, when it's colder as well. So it'll be a combination of those two technologies. How's the greenhouse heated? Uh, well, that would be one source of uh, supplemental heat is those um, those uh, the water tanks stored underground. Okay. We may use we may use other uh, supplemental heat as well, um, but uh, the advantage of this type of greenhouse is that uh, it requires much less supplemental heat than other types of winter greenhouses, and so it, it's, uh, it's supposed to be very cost-effective for farmers as opposed to uh, other types of uh, winter greenhouses. In addition to growing things, how else will this uh, demonstration site be used? Uh, it will be used to promote this technology with local farmers and gardeners and, to, and also as a research site to test it out, 
to tinker with it and, and uh, to, to study it um, and uh, to, you know, um, we'll be hopefully collaborating with uh, researchers at MUN and, and, and other schools and things like that. And, uh, and also it will operate as a social enterprise that can grow and sell produce and uh, support our, our workshops and, and other outreach and educational activities. Does Common Ground have any, any involvement in the K-12 system? Uh, we don't at this point, no. You know, because that's where when we're talking about attracting people into whether it be hydroponics or this type of greenhouse or traditional farming, we've lost so many farms and so many farmers and the average age is so high that I, I think know. we need to do more with uh, the K-12 system. But anything else you'd like to tell us about Common Ground before we say goodbye this morning, Lori? Uh, just that there's lots of ways that you can get involved. Uh, you can visit our website. Um, we'll be doing some work there in the spring in, at the the last two weeks of April where we'll be working on the greenhouse again. And we're always looking for, for volunteers. You don't have to have any special skills. Uh, a helping hand is great. So if you're interested in volunteering, just uh, uh, you can visit us on Facebook or visit our website. Um, you can volunteer there, or and we also have a GoFundMe. We're of course always fundraising for uh, the greenhouse and our other projects. Um, we're developing a, a permaculture demonstration site up there at the, at the garden as well. Um, so there's lots of ways to get involved. I'll give you my email address too if you sure. want to find out more, and that's Root Connection, R O O T Connection at gmail.com. Thanks very much for that. Uh, good luck with all the projects you're working on at Common Ground. Thanks for making time. Thank you so much. Take good care. Bye-bye. Have a great day. Bye-bye. You too. That's Lori Heath. She's the project manager with Common Ground. It's pretty fascinating stuff. Liquid foam insulation. So we've, we've gone about, you know, whether it be the hydroponics or this operation. So there's lots to talk about in advancing our food security issues. And, you know, I think there's more we can do. There really is. You know, it just takes a few business models that have uh, some backbone and some support, and whether it be government involvement at the seed money phase of bringing a project to bear. So we'll keep the food conversation going because it's a big one. Let's take a break. When we come back, home care in the queue. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Celestine, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Uh, I just wanted to talk to you this morning. I was thinking about an issue uh, with our kids. Like, what are we telling them today? Like, uh, are we telling them that it's okay to drink and smoke and do drugs just because we done it? No, I don't think so. I certainly don't know that message anywhere in my social circles, for instance. No, but uh, we're not telling them that there's any consequences for drinking and smoking and doing drugs. It's uh, it's legal today. And... Uh, and uh, I think we can do something about it if we tried. Uh, today we got a free healthcare system in a strain due to a lot of issues, but I think uh, drinking and smoking and doing drugs is is a lot of it. Uh, um, I think that we could uh, offer our our kids a, a better chance in life if if they didn't smoke or drink or do drugs. I think our society would be a lot better. I think there's lots of programs, even in the education system, about the risks associated with uh, all of the things that you mentioned. Like, for instance, you also said legalized, so I assume you're referring to cannabis. You know, what's interesting about that, since it has been legalized, there hasn't been any upswing in the number of youth using cannabis products. 
None. The segment of society that we have seen an increase are seniors, which is fascinating to me, but there hasn't been an uptick of young people using uh, marijuana. Now, with other more illicit and much more dangerous drugs, I don't know if it's prominent amongst youth in the country. Smoking numbers are down, although vaping numbers are up. The amount of drinking, I think, is always going to be a, an issue inside of the teenage years, especially when it comes to binge drinking. But I think people warn of the risks all the time. I mean, the not, the anti-smoking campaigns have been pretty successful. Now, in this province, we still punch above our weight regarding the national average. Uh, drinking, there was just a report came out identifying the risks of alcohol and cancer, for instance. So I think that work is ongoing. I don't think there's any consequences, though, for for drinking and smoking and doing drugs. I, what does that mean? What, what are, what's the consequence? Well, I don't think that uh, there's anything stopping them from doing it, right? Was there ever? No, there never was, no. And I, I think we're in a perfect place in Canada, a perfect position in Canada to do something about that. I think that we uh, offer a free health care system, I think that, if you want to qualify for your free health care, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be able to smoke, drink, or do drugs to qualify. You and get denied you care? You can't drink, smoke, and do drugs. You should be able to afford to pay for your own health care, I think. Isn't that a bit of a ridiculous consequence, to not no. be able to get health care because you smoke? You, you get help. You can get help. Well, what about someone who has Jigs dinner three times a week? Do they get health care? There's a sugar tax right now. Right, which doesn't mean that people don't consume sugar. No, but they're being taxed. Why? Because it's bad for them. And the same reason being taxed on smoking and alcohol and drugs. Well, that's right. And we pay extraordinary amount of tax on those products. Well, we could eliminate that by taking the tax off that, that, that product and saying, you know, you got to pay for your own health care. I think that's a long way down a consequential road. Well, you, can you imagine a society without, 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 where it's not cool to drink, smoke, and do drugs? But can you imagine the misery when you can't get health care? You can get health care. You can get help for it. I mean, government being involved in, for instance, a smoking cessation, and that was going around for a while. The focus was on low-income earners at the time, but, you know, there are ways to get help with all of those afflictions. But I don't think you're going to see much in the way of positive change if people are un- unable to afford health care uh, because they have one disease or another that may or may not be directly linked to one of their, I'll call it bad habits. But I don't know if that's a consequence that makes a whole lot of sense. I think we're setting ourselves up for a world of hurt and misery if that ever came to pass. I think we'd have a lot better society. Our kids wouldn't be taking up smoking and drinking and doing drugs. Why, they all of a sudden they make better decisions, just because? Well, they had to pay for their own health care. The well, no, they wouldn't. Their parents, their parents would. Someone else would. Their parents would, yeah. And you think they're going to hurt their parents? They're not. I mean, you got to hit them where, where it hurts. is in the pocket, right? Oh, man. I will have to just respectfully disagree in full on this. Oh, okay. We can't deny people health care like that. You know, it's the same when the conversation was... They can get insurance. If they can afford to drink, smoke, and do drugs, they can afford to pay for their own health care. No, they can't. Why not? Do you have any idea what health care procedures and treatment, especially when we talk about long-term, might cost when compared to buying smokes? Costs a lot of money, yes. And a lot of people are are getting away with with, with being 
well, we all pay for healthcare. I mean, well, I think we kind of kid ourselves when anyone refers to the system as free. It's the furthest thing from free. A third of the provincial budget in this province alone is directed to healthcare. Now, could we do better with uh, being proactive with our own health, more active, less sedentary lifestyle, less smoking, less drinking, less drugs, uh, better diet, you know, all of those things? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think those encouragements, because right now what we do is we treat you when you get sick. We don't do much to keep you healthy. So I get that concept. But if the consequence is if you smoke and you get, uh, whether it be COPD or lung cancer or something, then you can't get help unless you can afford it, people are just going to die long, miserable deaths. I'm not saying you can't get help. I already said if you could afford to get it, yes. But people can't afford to do that. They just can't. They can afford to drink and smoke. Yes, because it's not the same thing. It's very expensive. And there's also some of it's an addiction too, right? Yes, but that can be treated. I mean, I'm not saying don't give people health care, treat them. Okay. And you also have to want help to get help uh, for a variety of things, including all the things that you mentioned. Uh, anything else you want to add this morning? No, I just think that it would be a lot better society if, if we didn't drink, smoke, and do drugs. And I think we should give people that choice if they want to do it, they can afford to do it. They should, you know, at least pay for their own health care. Yeah, well, again, we'll just respectfully disagree on that front. Uh, A better society, a perfect society, a utopia would always be nice. Whether or not that's realistic, available, manageable, I think there's a conversation to be had there. I appreciate the time this morning. I hope you're doing okay. Okay, thank you. All the very best. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Let's get a reaction there on one. Ruby, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? I'm doing okay, thank you. How about you? That's good. I'm doing good. I just want to weigh in on that your last caller here. Sure. That uh, don't don't think that they should be able to get uh, health care if they smoke, drink, or do drugs. What about the gambler that wastes his money in gambling machines or whatever? Should he get help then? When to people me, th- those people. Uh, that are addicted to drugs, alcohol, or whatever, it's a disease. And they can't, they get themselves into it probably at a young age, uh, trying, like all of us tried smoking when we were young, whether we continued to do it or not, that's a matter of question right now. But I am totally, totally against his, his belief. I don't think health care should be kept from anybody, regardless of what they do. Yeah, it's, it's a fair point, because some of these things are, potentially some of them are even mental health issues. Like, this is Eating Disorder Awareness Week. You can become extremely ill. It's one of the most dangerous mental illnesses out there. So just because you have a, a, an issue, people might refer to it as an addiction, whether it be binging or purging, do they get help? I just don't think, you know, I, I don't really necessarily understand the point that he was making because we can indeed should be helping where we can whether it be with treating your drug addiction or your gambling addiction or your uh, your eating disorder or whatever the case may be because you know part of part of a healthier society is also really effective harm reduction policies not you know not turning blind eye and deaf ear to people when they become ill because of one thing or another is to try to put the harm reduction in place to keep people from getting seriously ill i mean i understand that concept and that actually works we don't do enough of it but you make a fair point like there's lots of reasons why you could indeed be jeopardizing your health 
But, okay, so I'm walking down the street with my earbuds in, listening to my music on crank. I don't look both ways. I get hit by a car. Do I get any help? You know, I just think that we can come up with a lot of silly examples to fall in line with that argument that really don't make a whole lot of sense. No, I certainly did not uh, pick any sense into what the gentleman was saying at all. He's entitled to his beliefs. Sure. I'm not condemning him for that. But uh, I wouldn't, I've worked with young people most of my life. And a lot of those young people come from very good families, and they still get themselves involved in, in drugs or alcohol. Should we turn a blind eye or a deaf ear to, to those things? Absolutely not. We should be there to offer them everything and anything we can to deter them from doing this. And if that means tapping into our health care system, I know lots of people that are diabetic that doesn't follow the the health guide. Should we condemn them and not give them uh, medication or, or Medicare? Because if they were following their uh, health guide and taking care of their health much better, they may not have diabetes. It's so true. There are lots, lots of things that we could look at. And to, for anyone to say that we should not treat somebody is absolutely wrong, in my opinion. And I appreciate you sharing it with us this morning, Ruby. Thank you for the call. Thank you so much, Patty. Take good care. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, in that whole world of harm reduction, you know, this is a story, I mean, I got some incredible feedback, even though I didn't even mention it, but a St. John City Councilor, Ophelia Ravencroft, is saying the ball is now in Eastern Health's court, and this is about addictions, is to create a safe injection site so that people can get a clean needle, do it in a safe environment, you know, whether it be with a naloxone on hand and healthcare workers, the opportunity to be exposed to some addiction treatments, and yes, a place to safely inject. People don't like the sound of it. You know, like one emailer said, well, if uh, Ravencroft wants that, then they should all be in Ravencroft's ward, which is ward number two. Harm reduction policies, just they just work. They really, truly do. Like, I mean, you compare trying to help people kick an addiction and or safe places to do these illicit drugs compared to what was the futility of the war on drugs. Because, you know, the same comments come around time after time after time is, well, if we take the drugs off the street, well, there's always going to be someone who's going to be there to sell the drugs, right? It's just true. So the war on drugs in North America has cost trillions of dollars, trillions. And where are we for it? Nowhere. We didn't advance anything. You know, you break up one ring, the next one comes right behind it. Not to say that that's good, but it's just the facts. And, you know, prohibition on any product has never worked. You know, look at the prohibition regarding alcohol. All we did was create a bunch of criminals. So things like that don't work, which is why I do legitimately and firmly believe harm reduction policies are the easiest way for a healthier, safer society. You know, like in BC, highly controversial. They got permission from Health Canada to begin decriminalizing possession, small amounts of illicit drugs, whether it be heroin or meth or cocaine or what have you, 2.5 grams. So, and they have a bunch of safe injection sites. They have a crisis on their hands and they have to do something. You know, like there's a stories floating around that some of the drugs on the streets now contain dangerous levels of fentanyl. And of course, that's a killer. So I get it. You know, when people think that we're, if, if you do anything but crack down with the criminal justice system as opposed to crack down with the healthcare system, it, I understand the thought process, but the fact of the matter is, 
the criminal justice system crackdown on drugs hasn't done a bloody thing. Nothing. It, it just hasn't. Why? Because we've been trying to crack down on drugs in North America forever and a day. And what, and what happened? It's worse than ever. So if you know a certain approach is not working, then maybe it's time to kind of change our tune and figure out what might work. You know, so uh, Councillor Ravencroft says a safe injection site is a good idea. You know, harm reduction policies to help people. Maybe keep them away from falling into the death spiral spiral of one of these deadly addictions. These things are vastly different than, you know, more cops, more arrests, more people in prison. And what ha- what has happened as a result of all of that approach? Nothing. Have me not even a chink in the armor of the drug world. Let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Moira, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? I'm doing okay, thanks. How are you doing? My- I'm fine, thank you. My voice is uh, my voice is stronger today, but that's a lie for me. I'm calling you from Roddington, where I'm a full circle advocate and caregiver, um, from the cradle to the casket, and I place an emphasis on the abilities of the people as opposed to the disabilities and the language of all of that. And I'm here to say that advocacy costs, that um, advocacy is invaluable, but here in healthcare, exactly what you said. To, or exactly what the chap was saying or suggesting um, that we withdraw health care from people, um, health care has been withdrawn from me. And health care was withdrawn from me here in the province by Labrador Grenfell Health Executive by taking away my community support hours, which are two and a half hours a day I get for somebody to get me up and out of bed since they revoked my maid, Fennel, on November the 28th. And to which I have no rebut or appeal, which is wholly unethical. But anyways, they took away my diets. They took away my home caregiver. They took away the snow clearing for safe access to me by the paramedics and the police. They took away my water. They took away literally everything from me because I swore. Now, that's ridiculous. It's not only because I swore, it's because John Abbott refused to release to Lavender Grenfell Health, a woman by the name of Budge, that um, what my 2001 income was. So my 2001 income is required in order for me to be determined eligible to have a caregiver in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador in the month of, in the month of January in 2023. And they're aware of that because they clawed back my COLA increase from the Canadian Disability Pension Program on December the 19th. They clawed back your what? I'm sorry, what was that acronym? I'm not familiar with it. COLA is the cost of living allowance provided to every Canadian with a disability. This year we got a 6% increase, which seen my... Canadian Disability Pension Check increased from $746 to $794, allowing Premier Fury to generously provide me only $9 on December the 19th to assist me with Christmas. Now, that's on December 19th that he's clawing back an amount of money that's on a check sitting before me that I only received, I think it was yesterday or the day before, in the mail. I'm on my deathbed, Patty, and I had the police come to my home the other night at 12 o'clock to charge me with harassing calls to 811, where because my tone wasn't perfect and I wasn't elevating my voice at a right 
level to continue talking on the suicide crisis line because, of course, you know, that's a hard word. But we, I don't want to live like this. I am literally experiencing the most egregious death I have ever bore witness to. It's worse than third world. So they say to me, oh, we're going to hang up on you. And I tell them I'm neurodiverse and I listen to grinding music and that makes me cuss too, start seizures as well. But they won't stop. This is phone med, our most expensive privatization of healthcare in this province ever. And our suicide rate here in the Northern Peninsula has doubled. So why are they telling us that this is a choice and then when we lose our medical assistance in dying for our medical condition, which is Ehlers-Danlos, they actually send the police after you because uh, you're begging for food. They took away my meals. I have not had a meal from Lavender Grand Fall Health since January the 1st. I am in my second month of starvation. And yesterday I had the courage to call up KW Hydro, or no, that's where I used to be, Newfoundland Hydro, and um, tell them that NLHC refused to address my unsafe house and my house was condemned two years ago where I'm dying in my bed in my own waste and even my diapers taken away. Moira, you say you haven't had a meal. Who were you getting meals from prior? I was getting a meal from a Labrador Grenfell health caregiver who prepared the meal in her own home because my home was not safe to prepare a meal. I don't have a way to prepare a meal here. I have no hydro for all intents and purposes. And they cut off my community support because... They want a 2021 notice of assessment. But given I was passing on November 28th with medical assistance and dying, I had all of my estate ready to just hand over to the accountants. And so I held off. But in November, when the doctors called the ethics into whether or not it was allowed it was allowable to let me die when I was in such poverty that my assessor would provide my dignified death in my own undignified state of stool. Um, they called it off and I quickly applied. But that was November. Now, I haven't got my 500 bucks because obviously I haven't got it done yet. But I also didn't even get my cost of living allowance for the end of January. So they took that. And then they took my health care because they want the notice of assessment that I filed all of my taxes for only in November thinking I was dying but realizing that and knowing the system was broken and punitive enough that it would take away Moira, my medical. Moira yeah. are you going to go ahead and file your taxes get the assessment get the funding back on course? I already filed my taxes I'm waiting for it to come from the Canadian government I filed them in the beginning of November, and they because I'm on income assistance, Patty, I have to sign three notifications that allow Lavender Grenfell Health to know what my income was for 2021 because, you know, they took it off me in on December the 19th, right, of 2022. Like, I've been getting this claw back on my December check for the end of January since I've been on income support here. And I'm policy analyst. Like, I know what I'm talking about, but I can't even talk to John Abbott's office. Not one single person in his entire ministry will have a conversation with me. Not one. They all hang up the phone immediately when I call. Do you happen, so they gag me. Do you happen to know the status of your tax filings? Whether it's been completed at CRA level, whether or not they've generated your 2021 assessment? Do you even know what's happening with your, your tax filing? 
Uh, yeah, I called up to them to find out where it was to to try to miss this January 1st deadline of refusing my health care services. And I, uh, they told me that I'm on some kind of a reassessment thing and everything because what I was trying to do was apply for my um, disability tax credit because when I'm only receiving my Canadian disability pension of 746 months, I hope you're sitting down, it's taxable. So they say I owe them money. They say I owe them tax, hundreds of dollars of tax. And all the money that I'm getting is less than $800 a month over the whole scope of all of my stuff. Yeah, you really need to speak with your member of parliament. I mean, because if this... My member of parliament does not call back. I called the coroner's office the other day because I'm filing an inquest into my death because I'm not dying of EDS here. I'm dying of complete neglect. It is criminal negligence causing death. So is Goody Hutchings your member? Goody Hutchins is my federal member, and That's I called you... her office. Her office accused me of being illegally in receipt of the disability pension and income support. She told me some representative from Revenue Canada told her that you are not allowed to be on income support and receive a Canadian disability pension. That is the That is her knowledge. I'm not sure what to say. This is a very tangly situation, obviously. Uh, for any short-term relief, is there a community support options available so that you can get some of this, whether it be food or otherwise? Or is there anything where you think that I might be able to point you to help in the short term while you wait for the assessment to come? No, zero. But you know what? I could point you to John Abbott because John Abbott knows exactly how much I made because he's connected up to the Canada... Uh, federal thing and he knows what my income was last year he knows what my income is the following year that's why okay premier clause at that i'll reach out to minister abbott's office to see if he can help me understand a little clearer exactly what's going on here and what he could or should do moira let me do that much anyway and i hope you're okay, going to be you, okay patty. you're hey, welcome patty yes patty i want to say something else thank you very much for providing my phone number because that person kindly purchased the medication that they Yeah, I know that happened. Yeah, then that's a good thing. Uh, But very quickly, before I do have to go, Moira. Bye. Take good care. Bye-bye. You as well. Yeah, I mean, last time we did have a a good Samaritan reach out and was willing to help, and this was with her uh, prescription costs for a month. Uh, Let's go ahead and take a break. An interesting development over at Memorial University, just to further frustrate the the people who are on strike, uh, members of the faculty association, and of course now the lecturers union, which many others who are represented by, they're not only forced to cross the picket line, which is very awkward and uncomfortable, but now they've been told by the university that they're not allowed to join the picket line, say for instance on their lunch break. You know, I don't even know how Memorial, they say it's a paid lunch break and so they'll have to do what the university says they can or what they're allowed to do, but so... If you're not a member of MUNFA, I guess they can't tell the students what to do because the students' union is well represented on the picket line. But members of the lecturers' union who would like to stand in solidarity with their colleagues represented by the faculty association, MUN says not allowed. Whew. Let's take a break. When we come back, show the content, it's up to you. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Michael, you're on the air. Yeah, good morning, Patty. How are you? Uh, you're, you're pretty much involved in sports, aren't you, a lot of times? I am, yes. Yeah, well, you're probably familiar with the old sports analogy. You know, build it and they will come. 
build it and they will come. So we've got a great tourist product here. Uh, however, they're not coming. <laughs> you know, uh, the uh, I'm in the tourist industry and a number of all of my friends are in the tourism industry. And uh, over the last, uh, you know, number of years, uh, we, we've nobody from Europe. No, you know, nobody, nobody. They can't get here. They can't get here at all. You know what I mean? And, uh, you know, we've got a, uh, you know, people might say this is people looking trips, but this is, this is uh, you know, people involved in the tourism industry. You know what I mean? The, uh, the, the thing that sort of gets me is that the kind of uh, battle gap, there, there's nobody picking up the, uh, nobody picking up the mantle, Paddy. Do you understand what I'm saying? I do. I mean, we've lost some very helpful flights. I mean, the one that pops in my mind all the time, and I have a soft spot in your heart, is WestJet Direct to Dublin. Yeah. Uh, we saw some good activity on that flight. Seat sales were up year over year. We had many more visitors coming from Ireland and places surrounding Ireland. But that seems to have dried up a little bit, Look, like everybody else. When we plan to travel, there's a few things that you have on your checklist. One is ease of travel and ease of route to get there, the time it takes to get there, the number of stops and the amount of money you spend. It is a very difficult place to get to when you're talking about Newfoundland and Labrador for people flying internationally. You know, just imagine if we had... Even a once a weeker, a once a week direct to Gatwick, a once a week direct to Dublin, a once a week direct to Newark. We would have so many more people flying here because the ease would be that much better. And, you know, people throw their hands in the air and say, well, there's nothing we can do. It's a business decision. Well, tell that to the folks at Stanfield International in Halifax. They lured our WestJet flight. Why? Because they cut them a break. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and the other thing is, you know, this is nothing new. Folks here got to realize uh, their memories that we had flights from, from Presswick to Gander, London to, to Gander. And the folks here, in t- uh, folks in town, the mucky mucks, the people around uh, St. John's said, oh, no, no, we want our own flight from St. John's. Where are they now? You know, where are these people now? And there's a lot of people, you know, dropping the ball. And, and Patty, you're probably familiar with, with governments now. It's this kind of thing. It's out of our hands. There's nothing that we can do. Have you heard that recently? Yeah, repeatedly. Repeatedly. And this is the kind of thing. And this, this kind of thing here is, uh, you, know, the, the, uh, you know, there are a number of people who've dropped the ball, uh, you know, in terms of tourism. You know, why bother with the big fancy ads in Europe and so forth? Uh, destinations, City of St. John's, Board of Trade, Airport. Where are you? Where are you in this issue? Are you missing an action? Drop the ball or, or they'll give us a battle gap. Well, it's air access and we have to plan and it could be two years. You know, the kind of frustration, you probably hear some of it in my voice. <laughs> Well, yeah, I do. Look, I, I think for every reason manageable, uh, even just for us as locals, you know, if there were more options, it would make life easier. When we talk about whether it be your own relaxing holiday trip or a business activity or tourists or whatever the case may be, it all has an impact when we have such a dearth of flights. And I think it's only going to get worse here, too, because we have very much now the two major airlines are, have a big feel of regional service and regional service only. WestJet just pulled out of Deer Lake. They've set up shop primarily in Western Canada to service that part of the country. Air Canada is probably all that we're going to ha- see really do some of these long-distance flights. There's going to be uh, harder and harder for smaller carriers to get in the game for a variety of reasons. Not only that the big guys shove them out financially, is that there's now all of a sudden a pilot shortage as well. So this is piling up to be a massive problem. Absolutely. And the other thing, it relates to no competition in sort of, I don't want to go off my topic, but no competition in the cell phone industry, no competition with the groceries, the big, you know, this idea of no competition and the guys get richer and richer and services. I mean, you take Iceland, you take the Faroe Islands, 
you know, any place in the world, and even Qatar, when they talk, when they sort of dumped on Qatar for the the World Cup, you anybody you can get there, you can certainly get there any place in the world. Uh, but from here, you know what I mean, in terms of tourism and there's, you know dropping the ball, you know what I mean. And I think we've got to be keep after them, after them, you know. And governments, where are they? You know, in terms of the, the you know federal you know federal ministers and or premier missing an action. You know, gone off the file, and, and that's the obscene thing. And I know it's a strong word. The obscene thing is that the people who know are doing nothing, hope this goes away, say nothing, hope this might go away. You know, it won't go away. No, it won't. And I mean, you add to it all the problems we've seen, whether it be with Sunwing over the holidays, and they're going to probably not exist for very much longer. The federal minister talked about clamping down on the airlines. So everything inside of that industry has been pretty problematic over the recent past. I mean, I just read the story about the pilot shortage. It's really quite something. The poaching ground for WestJet and Air Canada, they just go to the small carriers. And consequently, the small carriers are running out of steam, running out of business. Yeah, I don't, last word, I don't want to dump on the local airport, but seemingly they can't even get taxis on the go. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? That's another one. You can't get taxis on the go. Uh, you know, I mean, where are they? Where missing on the action? You know, dropping the ball, not our responsibility. Uh, and I think they've got to be held to, held to account for that. And uh, you'll hear from me, and I'm sure there might be other people might call. We haven't heard too many of them yet. There might be other people, the Board of Trade. Where's the City Hall? Where are they? Listener Mike just sent me a link while we're speaking this morning, Michael, and this is regarding Halifax and expanded service from uh, Stanfield International. We're thrilled Air Canada will now offer new non-stop service between Halifax and New York starting later this year. So they've secured yet another route, and here we are. And all these Irish ambassadors and Canadian ambassadors who float through here and, you know, you know, wind and dine at the hotel. You know, where are they? Missing an action again. You know, and, and, and as I say... Folks, if uh, if you want something done, uh, there is a Facebook group uh, that you know that, that was involved in this and uh, sort of has gone. It's sort of gone missing in action too. But I think I've said enough for this morning, Patty. And if, you know, as I say, hopefully maybe some other people might um, you know pick up the mantle on this one. I appreciate the time, Michael. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Take care. Uh, bye bye. We have put so much stock on tourism. Well, we really have. I mean, the government has done a pretty good job in supporting the industry as a whole. But if it's going to be harder and harder to get here, then tourism is going to absolutely suffer. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Uh, don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Oral, you're on the air. How are you doing, Patty? Okay, you? Uh, Patty, I, I tell you, Patty, I am flabbergasted. With one what? thing I want to ask you, Patty, I noticed in uh, B.C. and in a lot of provinces, they're, they're uh, wearing the, the cam, the police cam. The body cameras on police? Y- yeah. Now, when they when just say at the end of the day, do they check the do their uh, uh, superiors? Do they check the uh, body cam to see what's going on, or on on which police? Okay, okay, say for the police. Okay, just say, okay. What I what I mostly phone you about, my buddy, is I am really really disappointed. My daughter has a personality disorder. See, now that's a mental illness, right? Okay. Okay, the doctors gave her wrong meds, see? So now what my daughter is, is, is in, involved in something that she shouldn't be involved, you understand? And she had a curfew and she was supposed to go home, right? Okay, just back to the body cameras for a second. Uh, police here, they don't wear body cameras. 
Exactly, and I am really, Patty, I'm crying, Patty. My, I almost lost my daughter in ICU so many times over there. Old, like Buddy was just talking earlier about drugs, but it, this is a different drug, right? And the cop grabbed her and he threw her on the ground. Now, where's his professional? You know, where, where's, where's his professional there? Because I'm worried, Patty. I, I, I can't get that five cops out of my head with killing that other guy, right? And when I find out someone that got locked up, I mean, this girl is harmless, Patty. And she's a good girl, right? So I'm not 100% sure what we're talking about. So your daughter had an altercation with police where yeah, she was yeah, well, thrown she was on her way. Point. She was on her way home, and her mother told her, man, you got, or my daughter, you got to be in a certain time, 11 o'clock. So she was on her way home, but it was a little late. See, it was 1.30. She was out going around with those other whatever. I, I don't want to mention nothing in the year about those other uh, whatever, you know, the people that don't. Uh, value life or whatever, right? Find life precious, right? So she went and she done something, and then the cops grabbed her and he threw her right on the ground. And the thing is, Patty, she's only small and she's she's very very nice girl. She can't help it that she's sick, right? But other people, it's like me. I have anxiety and depression. Now, if I don't smoke weed, well, my anxiety's gone up to half the moon. I can't even come out of the room or nothing. Right? Okay, I mean... But the thing is, my buddy, is what I'm trying to get at here, if I'm a police officer dri- driving down the street and I see this uh, little person or something, uh, she looks a little odd, uh, suspicious or whatever, I'm going to do it with a professional. I'm going to put the cops down her and I'm going to take her into the hospital or something. I'm not going to hurt her, right? That's what I'm uh, concerned about, Patty. Okay, now I don't really know the circumstances about uh, the... Interaction between your daughter and the police on that, on that particular issue. But you know, the when it comes, to, I just want to talk about the body cameras for a second. I know yeah. there's always going to be concerns voiced by privacy commissioners about exactly that people's personal privacy, because the cams will pick up everything. But if you boil it back down to, you know, there's nothing quite like going to the tape to settle a he said she said kind of a, yeah. a circumstance. But yeah. then you know how they store the data, who has access to it, how it gets disseminated. Those are all absolutely fair concerns that privacy commissioners and individuals will have. But sometimes we never get down to knowing exactly what happened because the contradictory statements, and it's hard to prove something that is just based on uh, hearsay or my thought or my take on it, my perspective, what I think, what you think. So I don't, I don't dispute the fact that body cameras can indeed be helpful, and we've seen them be helpful in many circumstances. Now, a lot of this comes from the United States, but I think there's certainly more conversation to be had there. Remember, the bylaw officers, I believe it was in Happy Valley Goose Bay, they were wearing them for a little while until they were told that they could no longer do it, and it captured a couple of things which we don't really need to see, but, exactly. but other things that we do need to see. That's right, yeah, and you got them in Alberta, because I was out in Alberta, and I my last my girlfriend, I dropped, I left everything up to Patty, I left the car, I left it, I left it out just to come home. Why'd you do that? Daughter. So, well, when my girlfriend died in my arms. Oh, my God. Then I heard my daughter had an issue with, with the other stuff, right, so I just dropped everything, Patty, I got on the plane, I let come down, and then I got a call this morning saying they were pushing her around in that, right, so... Here's what I'm going to do now as as Oral, my name. I'm going to go over there, and I'm going to, just going to put it, because uh, they know, they got to write all that in about being arrested, who was on, yada, 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 right? And then I'm going to put a complaint in, because I got to, Patty, right? I mean, she's so small, and she's harmless, right? She has two beautiful little boys and a daughter that's really concerned about her, right? And what, kind, mean, of, what kind of help is she getting? 
This is just it, uh, Patty. We've been trying to reach out for help for that little girl for years and years. This is about 17 years old with this little girl. So she has a formal diagnosis, but no no support? No, no. And she goes in psychosis. See, she probably went in psychosis when the police officer was grabbing her and throwing her to the ground, frightening her to see, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't know what happened there, so uh, there's not much I can say about that. No, 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 I'm just saying, Patty, uh, you know what I mean? I'm just talking, uh, you know, in that perspective, like, you know what I mean? Okay, so... I, I find it out of fear, anyway. Has she tried to get help? I'm unsure as to why uh, she's getting no support. She, uh, she tries to get help, and then she runs away from help, Patty, and that's, you know, being a parent and a grand is a full-time job, right? Because sure. I have to keep check on her every day of my life, and... Yesterday, I didn't get the text, and, I, and someone said she was at the city. Light. I said, oh, my God, that little girl, what are we going to do with her? But she has to be supervised, see? Supervised by who? By her parents, me or her mother. Okay. You got to keep an eye on her all times. Like, you know what I mean? You can't give money, they're gone. You can't give money, they're gone, right? Well, I hope she gets whatever help is required, whether it be in supervision and or treatment, because... It's like uh, some of the conversations we've been having already this morning, and I suppose almost every day here on the show, is yeah. the, peop- the people who want help and they go get it, we've got to make sure that they can find it. And yeah. so if that requires ongoing supervision so that they don't hurt themselves or others or run afoul of the law based on a mental illness or what have you. I know there's more training afforded to law enforcement officers in this province and around the country. There's a model they've adopted, I believe it's called the Memphis model, where when they know they're responding to a mental health crisis call, they bring, you know, uh, civilians who have mental health training or some non-uniformed officers as well to try to de-escalate before things get out of hand. Uh, Oral, I hope she's doing okay, and I hope you are too, and I appreciate your time yeah. this morning. Okay, Patty. Thanks a lot, buddy. Take care. Okay. All right, bye-bye. Uh, and someone also just chimed in about uh, travel. You know, one thing getting in and out of here, but even just traveling inside the province <laughs> is a massive problem. And an extraordinary cost. You look how much it costs to make your way from St. John's to Happy Valley Goose Bay. Holy smokes. I mean, the price tag on those airline tickets are completely, I mean, it's certainly out of reach for the vast majority of us. Anyway, let's get another one before we get to the break. Let's go to line number three. Leo, you're on the air. Good, good morning, Penny. Morning to you. I've been looking at this, oh, this uh, personal or uh, personal care uh, home situation. I can't get my head around it one way or the other. Of course, there's not much in my head to get around. What's that though? What are you trying to wrap your mind around? Uh, uh, for instance, uh, when I say, for instance, when I was 65, I could have went into a personal care home. Hey. Okay. Now that was 23 years ago. Now when I went in, as well known fact, I mean, see, they took away your your uh, your income, your uh, pension, and they were subsidized another $1,000 by the government. Now, take 23 years at $1,000 a month and figure that out and see what you come up with. Okay, where are we going with the, the points you're making, Leo? It is. I mean, say, I, I, I can't understand it, like, if I, if I want to stay, like I want to stay, I want to make the decision that I want to stay in my own home, not my own home, in an apartment. Now, if they can subsidize a personal care or a personal care home for $1,000 a month, 
why can't they, if I decide to stay in my own apartment or whatever, why can't they give priority of that to me to help me out, or anybody else for that matter? Well, I mean, I think I try to talk about this stuff. You know, the whole thought or concept of aging in place and whatever supports are required to make that a possibility for more and more seniors. There's a lot of upside to it. It's where they're happiest and they're healthiest and they're safest and they're close by their family and their friends and familiar surroundings. Then you even just do cost comparisons. What what it costs to be in a care home or long-term care bed versus being able to stay in home with whatever kind of supports you need. And of course, every individual is different for what they might need, whether it be financial support or home care support or what have you. So I think we've got to figure that out. I mean, the seniors advocates, both the current seniors yeah. advocate, uh, Miss Walsh, and of course, Suzanne Brake, they talk about this a lot. It's in the health accord addressed very clearly. So I think we've got to, you know, I, I try to talk about preparing for the future, whether it be with aging demographics or dementia or li- aging in place, because we can do a better job of preparation if we do it today versus do it tomorrow when for some people it's too late. Yeah, that's another story now. This Miss Welsh, I mean, here you know, there a while ago, probably like a couple of weeks ago, there was a man phoned in here, and he was in big trouble. He was phone, after phoning around to everybody that he could, and he wasn't getting no answers back. Well, why would he phone into you? Why don't he phone into the, 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 the seniors advocate? What's she doing? Well, it's an interesting question, but here's one of the issues that I've always thought, I'm not so sure if we're on the right track with that particular office. I think it's important, but they... they they're not necessarily in the business of dealing with one-on-one cases, one-offs. They're talking about policy matters. So policies that would impact hundreds or thousands or more of seniors, that's kind of what they're focused in on versus if you call and say, I'm Leo, I'm a senior living on the West Coast, here's my problem, can you please help? Because that's not really their mandate. Now, if it was, of course, we'd have to expand the services and the numbers of people working at the advocate's office, maybe by tenfold, if not more. But they don't really do the, the case-by-case issues. That's just not what they're set up to do. Now, here's another one, I mean, say, okay. concerning seniors. Uh, take, for instance, now, uh, these seniors' homes, say, I think, uh, I don't know, I'm not pretty well up on it, but they got three, probably two or three uh, different rooms, like uh, if you want to, uh, want a private room, you know, I mean, say to yourself, you've got to pay so much more. Now, I know a person that wants to go into a home, but she can't afford it, and she don't want to go into a room to share a room with somebody else. So, I mean, say that's a roadblock right there, you know, for yeah. people that want to go in these homes. And who do, you know? Fair enough. Mm-hmm. I, I, I get that. I'm not sure if you need me to react to it. But, again, that's why the individual cases, there's not a one-size-fits-all. There's not, for regardless of what we're talking about. But, getting, you know, maybe the senior's advocate expanding that person's mandate for more ability for case-by-case work might be very helpful. I mean, I know that I've got a stack of files on my desk regarding individual cases, whether it be for seniors or otherwise, that for some somehow ended up my job, <laughs> which has yeah, been an interesting yeah. transition yeah, uh, during the show. Yeah, anyway, last word to you, Leo. Go ahead. Yeah, I know. I, 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 uh, I uh, certainly uh, looking at it from uh, trying to figure it out in figures and come up with the figures that I come up with for, say, my, in my case, 23 years that I could have been in a home, and I mean, say, it's a hell of a hell of a lot of money, and it'll buy a lot of uh, 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 macaroni and cheese, I'll tell you. 
But right. anyway, that's, that's why I spoke for this morning. I appreciate your time, Leo. Okay. Take, take care. Day. Bye-bye. All right, so off the top here this morning, you mentioned that last night was absolutely frigid. I hit about minus 17. And, of course, when the wind picks up a little bit, it's even colder than that. And we've heard the most recent research regarding homelessness in this, just in the city alone. And those numbers are in the hundreds. And we've got a lot of shelters and a lot of not-for-profits and charities doing everything they can to try to help the most vulnerable population. But we're at capacity. You know, whether it be at Iris Kirby House or the Gathering Place or other mercy shelters, we're absolutely at capacity. And it's hard to know exactly what goes on on a day-to-day basis, but we've been told that some people get turned away because they just don't have a spot for them. There's been such a, an explosion in the numbers of people turning to organizations like the Gathering Place. We'll hear more about that when we come back after this break and speak with the executive director there. That's Paul Davis. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the executive director at The Gathering Place. That's Paul Davis. Paul, you're on the air. Uh, Good morning, Patty. Thanks for having me on this morning. Happy to have you on. I mean, just to set the stage here, you know, there was a lot of work done to create The Gathering Place in the first place and a lot of fundraising done to expand the services at The Gathering Place. But take us back, say, two, three years about just how many people you were serving versus how many you're serving today. Yeah, certainly. And as you mentioned, the, you know, the Gathering Place has gone through a, almost a continuous transformation since it was first established in the early 1900s. Around 2014, they opened the new redeveloped uh, Gathering Place as it exists today. And at that point in time, the Gathering Place had 400 registered guests. By 2019, that had grown to 900. And today, we're hovering around 2,000 registered guests. And that doesn't include, Patty, as well, guests who don't register, because people can, can come in and we don't force them or require them to register. We, we encourage them to do so. Uh, but there are also guests, you know, any number of hundred or thousand or more guests who come here from time to time, not every day, obviously, but who come here from time to time who are not registered guests. What's the upside of registering? What does that get somebody? Uh, regist- yeah, register registering helps our staff. So we, we we're we're the only service in the province of this kind that, that I'm aware of, and and we have ten uh, case management positions here. And to be eligible today to be a case manager, you had to be a registered social worker. So they deal with they deal with many aspects of an individual's life. Uh, our guests are are the most marginalized and vulnerable citizens in our our community. They're, they are citizens who have um, had uh, challenges in relationships with with families, friends, and other services. So we we deem ourselves to be a low barrier service. So there's very little that will stop you from accessing services at the uh, you know at the gathering place. So as time goes on, the demand for service we've seen significant increases, especially since COVID. Uh, and when we created their first uh, shelter in partnership with the government. Uh, and But we're still continuing to see those numbers increasing. The concept, like uh, one thing that strikes me all the time, and whether I'm talking to Doug Pawson at End Homelessness St. John's or you or someone from Stella Circle or what have you, is just how many people are absolutely homeless or on the verge of being homeless, whether it be couch surfing or one missed paycheck away from not having a roof over their head. So in these cold winter nights, what happens at the gathering place? Are people being turned away because of capacity issues? Unfortunately, yes, they are. And we uh, we work with Newfoundland Labrador Housing, so they run the provincial um, uh, shelter line, and they they assign or appoint uh, you know guests to different shelters. So we also have we also have a circumstance where not always everybody shows up. 
So, uh, and then there's times when everybody shows up and we have to turn people away. Uh, a couple of nights ago, we turned away five. But just to give you a comparison, uh, and that was in one night, just to give you a comparison on, on turnaways when we're full, because we have a 30-bed uh, shelter. I mean, it's a temporary facility. We're working on a permanent one, but it's a temporary facility that was set up in 2020 when COVID saw a, a significant increase in, in homelessness occur in, in our province. And uh, they will assign guests to us. In, in earlier this year, uh, we were averaging, you know, March, April 2022, we were averaging 16 turnaways uh, per, per month. Uh, in the last quarter of 2022, we turned away, October, November, December 2022, we turned away 123 people. So that's 41 per month. And there's, it seems to be a sustained, uh, sustained increase. Uh, so when we can't take anybody else, quite often they just simply have nowhere else to go. We have a bus shelter outside of our facility on Military Road. Uh, we try to provide, you know, people donate sleeping bags and blankets and so on to us, and we provide those sleeping bags and blankets so and so on to people who who uh, have no other alternatives. Uh, we know we've had challenges with the bus shelter as well because, you know, some of the neighbors are not are not happy with it, and, and uh, no Metro bus gets complaints about it. But for some people, there's, there's just nowhere else for them to go. You know, I know that the organization is there to provide a variety of services, whether it be dental care or for our clothing or any other program that you offer. But when it comes to turning someone away who maybe has run out of options, and say, for instance, last night at minus 17, you know, people have posed it to me this way. Is, is there a... Is there a reason because it is it a staffing or is it a space issue? Because even sat down or lying on the floor of the gathering place is a much warmer, safer environment than trying to find a place in some vestibule or an ATM or something like that. Is there a reason why they just cannot come in out of the cold? Yeah, so in our, our shelter, we have, we have a space limitation, and that limitation is to allow uh, 30 people in. We are having discussions amongst our leadership team this week about this coming weekend uh, on Saturday, and is there, is there any way that we can you know, advance or do a little more under these very extreme uh, circumstances? Um, but you're right, and there's encampments in some parts of the province. You know, Lab- Labrador, uh, uh, Happy Valley Goose Bay has, a, has an issue with an encampment in, right, you know, right in their town. Uh, so it's a very difficult circumstance, and I I know from my own experience that you know in 2020 government responded and partnered with us so that we could establish this temporary shelter. We are in the process. We're soon going to announce a contract on a redevelopment of the convent that's attached to us to expand our shelter, but also transitional housing and and uh, and supportive housing. But those things you know just take time to do. So we are working on a short term. What is it we can do in the coming days when we get this cold snap uh, hit us, and uh, we. We fill our shelter, you know, in, in the last quarter, as I mentioned, 44 out of the 1991 nights in, in that quarter that we're full. You know, we're running about 96% capacity in our shelter, and we just can't we just can't take anybody else inside. But it's a difficult circumstance, uh, Patty, and, and uh, as an organization, it's very difficult for us and very difficult for our staff to turn people away at the door. Uh, but we do try to provide them with uh, with items to help them get through the night. And they, hang, they quite often stay close to the area because 8 o'clock in the morning we're open, and they come in and they'll warm up with breakfast and coffee and so on. Uh, you know, we're serving three meals a day seven days a week we're running about 400 to 420 meals a day that we're serving out the gathering place right now so you know and overall the demand is not going away and, and we're concerned about this coming 
cold snap as well. There's a real disconnect in emergency services here, and I mean housing and different uh, a variety of different supports. We've got organizations like yours, and then we've got these for-profit emergency shelters, and there's a, a couple of reasons why they became a thing. Do we have a cost analysis of what it takes to have someone housed or supported in a, an organization like yours versus the millions of dollars we spend on these for-profit emergency shelters? Yeah, Newfoundland Labor Housing would be the best one to direct that question at, as they they coordinate, um, you know, shelter services in the in the uh, in the province. Um, when we started in the shelter business in 2020, not that long ago, and we've learned a lot about the shelter world uh, since uh, since then. And uh, but we've had a good relationship with Newfoundland Labor Housing. Um, they're part of our project to add more to create a, a, a larger permanent uh, shelter, and you know that. Newfoundland Labor Housing and government are are helping fund that project with us as well, so they are responding to that. Uh, but I can't give you an analysis on cost from one operation to another because I'm sure they're all varied. Uh, last one before we let you go. So with the numbers of uh, clients, I think is the word you use, that have grown at the Gathering Place yeah. over the last few years, what about uh, the numbers of paid staff and what about the numbers of volunteers? Have they grown commensurate with the need? Well, actually, the number of volunteers has decreased significantly. COVID had an impact on our volunteers. And uh, we have a lot of people come through our building, and it's probably five or 600 times a day our front door opens and someone comes in. So we've been, uh, we've been really uh, stressed on, uh, on maintaining uh, the number of volunteers we've had. And we have added staff. We've added, we've added significantly to our staff. We've increased our case management team. Uh, who uh, we, have, we have two groups within that team who focus strictly on housing, on housing people and helping people stay housed. We have a good partnership with Homelessness uh, St. John's in uh, in those programs. Uh, we've had to increase our, you know, our maintenance staff, but also increase uh, our guest support staff as well, our kitchen staff, you know, our costs for meals go up and so on. So we've had, it, had to add uh, staff uh, since COVID started. I, I, uh, we're, a, we're a swap satellite site. You're familiar with SWAP, I know, from yep. part of the uh, uh, H20 Newfoundland Labrador program, which is they provide uh, harm reduction supplies uh, to uh, to drug users and our uh, our demand has increased and you know I was talking with them is it you know is it unique to move to to gather place what's happening and I know I uh, hope I'm not speaking for them but they've seen the demand for swap supplies double in the last year or so and that's not just here in St. John's it's right around the province so there's a bigger thing happening we know it's happening across the country you know it's not a St. John's issue or a Newfoundland Labrador issue we know it's a countrywide issue there was an interesting case just last week Patty out of uh, out of Kitchener Waterloo where the regional municipality uh, went to the Ontario Supreme Court as they wanted to remove an encampment a, ho- a, a homeless encampment that existed and the courts turned down the request and they said that you can't move people and I, I'm, I'm reading from the news reports I haven't seen the case myself and just reading from the news reports to qualify that but they basically said people have a right to shelter and if there's no indoor shelters available in the community and they've set up their own encampment in their own own shelter then it'll be a violation of their constitutional rights to remove them mm-hmm. so that's an interesting case that i know it's having uh, it's being looked at and reviewed across the country and it's certainly uh look, being looked at here too i i would i would well imagine you know i think about again the bus shelter out in front uh i know metro bus has a lot of pressure on them to to uh to do something about that i certainly hope they don't uh, they don't remove it and they consider that case as well when they're 
when they're making their decisions. But we're doing everything we can, Patty, and um, we have a good, dedicated staff here who work. You know, very difficult clients sometimes. Our guests, as we refer to them, are, uh, can be challenging to to uh, to be able to look after their needs, uh, understand their past traumas, understand where they've come from, and the difficult lives that many of our guests have had in the past. And we try to look beyond their current circumstances and see them as people and provide for them the best we can. How many paid staff are at the Gathering Place, Paul? Well, we're, we're about 90, over 90 right now, Patty. Uh, when I came here, uh, we were lower than that, but we're right now we've built a, a staff to about 90. So we've, you know, as I mentioned, we've had to ask, add staff to our shelters. Shelter was new in 2020. Uh, we've added more guest support staff who deal with guests on a regular basis. We've increased our case management team as well. And when you have more people come to your building than ever before, then you have other things, everything from, from um, um, uh, supply chain, you know, waste management, kitchen staff, cleaning staff, building maintenance, all those things all go up as the demand for service goes up. How about attention to safety and security? And You know, you manage some uh, clients who do have some very difficult traumatic pasts, and maybe some of the interactions inside the gathering place might be contentious or heated. What described that air of safety and security inside the gathering place? Yeah, absolutely. And safety of our guests, our staff and volunteers is of utmost importance to us. And we always try to balance that with a, a trauma-informed response, understanding individuals' past trauma, where they came from and their circumstances, and balance that. We're actually right now going through a safety review. We've got an independent contractor who we've retained who's looking at independently at all of our operations, all of our functions. We look forward to their report to make recommendations to us. But we've done things like we have to, to security at work in our shelter throughout the nighttime. Uh, a few months back, we added a, a security guard, a single position in the daytime. So we have a so 24 hours a day. Now we have actually have security on site. We've uh, we've added some cameras to the exterior of our building as well uh, for the protection and safety of our uh, of our guests and to be able to uh, you know monitor any past issues and review incidents and those kinds of things. And uh, we've developed new policies and protocols. Um, and we have a number of devices that we've added to our staff for the safety of them as well. So we've we've taken a number number of steps, but safety and security is something that we always have to consider. Just because we've done something doesn't mean it stops there. We have to continue to do it. Appreciate the time this morning, Paul. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you, Patty, for the time. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Paul Davis, of course, the Executive Director at The Gathering Place. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Carol Zare talking carbon tax. We're going out to Bonavista, hoping to make time with the mayor of Bonavista with some of the community efforts being put forward to attract doctors to the region. I'm not sure what Sharon wants to talk about. We'll hear from them right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number five. Sharon, you're on the air. Uh, good morning. Um, I'm a nurse in Bonavista Hospital. I just wanted to put out there how bad it really is down here. Um, we have the doctor, no doctor now for seven days, which means our pl- first, our closest place is Clarenville to get for emergency. So the night before last, I went to St. John's on the ambulance, but I went on the Clarenville ambulance, which means they only brought me back as far as Clarenville. So a taxi had to come up to Clarenville to get me. And the roads. The snow was two feet high coming back, and I don't know how I made it home alive. But the thing is, if we don't, if we have one cut but through, at least an ambulance might have a chance of getting there to, to Clarenville. But if there's no cut but through our road from Bonavista, there's no ambulance going to get us there either. And some night, somebody is going to die. And it wasn't because it was stormy, because it was snowing, yes, but the snow had stopped 
like for hours and it was dripping a little bit but nothing bad but the snow was two feet high so it was too hard for us to almost drive through they said we're one cut but three at least someone to stand a chance <laughs> you know the the issue regarding the lack of emergency service and now the doors are simply closed in Bonavista and you know add that to the list I mean Whitburn I think we're in their seventh month out there without their clinic being opened you know and I understand the resource concern and if you don't have an emergency room doctor it's hard to have an emergency room functioning but I'm a little bit unsure as to why there isn't maybe say for instance rotations put in place you know in the concept of locums whatever it is to provide even some services as opposed to the complete and entire withdrawal of services it's really very very difficult i can only imagine right because i live in the city and the emergency rooms are open and they have not been closed now there could be extraordinarily long wait times but waiting a long time is vastly different than maybe not getting an ambulance to and fro clarenville for any emergency services whether it be uh, the time for ambulance turnaround so the complications out in your area are extraordinary and i don't even know how we solve it i suppose it's as fundamental as getting an emergency room doctor but of course that's oversimplifying the problem anyway isn't it Yes, well, like I said, we can't get a doctor. Like, there's, you you can't cover if you don't have a doctor. There, there's no there's no emergency. Yep. And you got to have someone there. But the thing is, our next place is Clarenville. We at least got to try to keep the road up enough to get us through, you know? Like, uh, I'm telling you, nobody knows how bad it was the other night. And like I said, if, if the road had one cut, at least I would have been able to come through okay. But I'm telling you, I don't know how I got home. I only for the taxi driver was so experienced. And I, don't, I, don't, I honestly don't think the ambulance would have made it through. But the road, like I said, was two feet high, and at least if we had one cut, you'll stand a chance of getting an ambulance up there. So I don't know what's going to happen to us down here, but some night it's going to be bad. And there's nobody to say, phone the Department of Highways and get a truck to take you, uh, like, or get a truck to go ahead of you, because you phone the Department of Highways, you, do not get a, you might get a person, and the person you might get might be in Deer Lake. That's what happened to me. And, you know, so you can't get someone right away. If it's emergency, it's emergency. Someone's life depends on it. You know, that brings us to the whole concept of 24-7 snow clearing operations. You know, when the minister responsible is asked about it, they say, well, the depot closes at X hour and the plows come off the street at this hour or whether conditions become so bad that they can't safely operate. But then they go on to say, we will indeed have snow clearing take place or rice control take place when and if there's an emergency. But... To me, it also says the quiet part out loud. We might see an emergency happen because the road's not cleared. So you get yourself in trouble or you're in an accident because of terrible road conditions and the plow's not out and there's no salt on the road. So which one is it? We're going to try to keep you safe by keeping the road clear or we're going to wait for an ambulance to be required and every second counts when we're talking about ambulatory services or people get themselves in trouble because the conditions are so bad. So it doesn't necessarily make a whole lot of sense. No, I don't know what's going to happen to us down here. I re- but I, I know, I know. Yes, I know what's going to happen. And when it do, it will be too late. I, I do know what's going to happen, and so does the world. And and I don't know. But like I said, if the, and it wasn't stormy. Like I said, it was snowing. But if you had a cut put through, at least like I said, someone would have stood a chance. And I'm telling you, I I don't know what's bad down here. And I didn't realize how bad it was until this happened to me the night before last. <laughs> Are you okay? Oh, I'm fine. I, I, I was totally upset. I sat down and cried about this yesterday because I know what's going to happen. And like I said, I worked as a nurse for 30-something years, and I'm still doing escorts, like on the ambulance. I'm retired, but I still do a lot of runs on the ambulance, so, so you know. So what do you do on the ambulance as a retired nurse? Just curious. Oh, I, I take the patient. Like, if we got a sick patient, I take the patient. Like, in Banda Vista, there's only so much we got to work with, so we have to take them to Clamba or St. John's when it requires more, you know? 
So on, on the escort, the nurse escort. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I was just curious. Uh, I didn't mean to pry. I appreciate no, the time. No, that's fine. <laughs> okay, thank you, yeah. Sharon. I know it's a, di- a difficult circumstance. We're going to expand on it regarding Bonavista with the mayor. I think John Norman's going to join us in a little while about some of the municipal leadership efforts that they're putting into trying to attract the doctor. And it's some interesting, you know, thinking outside the box stuff they're doing. Let's hope it's successful. Okay, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Okay, bye-bye. Bye, Sharon. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Appreciate the patience of you two in the queue. We'll get to you right after this. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number three. Carol, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Doing okay. How you doing? Not too bad. Go. I was wondering about the uh, carbon tax, the rebate yep. that was supposed to be given to people that burn oil that Seamus O'Regan had had on. I had never heard nothing on it. Do you have to apply for that? No, carbon tax is an, is an automatic issue. Um, now, I'll admit freely, I'm not 100% sure how the federal carbon tax works because we've never lived with the federal carbon tax plan, and it's coming to town, uh, coming to this province in April, is my understanding, which we'll see our first carbon tax hike, which is a couple of cents on a liter of gas, for instance. But how the rebate works and how it gets averaged out, because, for instance, if I have full-on electric key to my home what kind of rebate can i anticipate because i probably have a vehicle or two that uses gas or diesel or something so carol i'm still trying to figure out exactly how it's going to work uh, i was under the understanding that uh, like a, a family of four would get a rebate of 325 dollars four times a year there is a calculator out there January, but I, it didn't say if you had to apply for it or what right yeah let's see here da, 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 da. Yeah, carbon tax rebates are 528 for an individual, 264 for a spouse or common law partner, 132 per child, 264 for the first child in a single parent home, and on and on it goes. So there is a carbon tax calculator that I've tried to use. So it's in place right now in Manitoba, Alberta, Saskatchewan, uh, PEI, and of course coming here. The big problem that many people have with it, well, people have a problem with the carbon tax anyway, I would suggest, but it's the application of an additional tax on home heating fuels, which we've been examining from uh, for the last couple of years when we had our own provincial uh, carbon tax in place. And of course, all that revenue went to the province. Now that's all going away and it goes to the federal government, albeit with some rebates in place. Some people claim that you get about 90% of what you spend uh, back in the form of a rebate. And if it's as fundamental as everyone gets that number that I just quoted, fair enough, but I still really don't know how it works, to be honest with you. No, I don't know either. I, I was ex- I was under the understanding that it was going to come out in January, and they said, you know, like the carbon tax won't be put on us until July, but we were going to get some rebates even before July. But I mean, you know, we never heard nothing on on any of it. And, uh, I was wondering if anybody else heard anything. Right? I've actually tried to get someone from one of the provinces that had the federal carbon tax in play in place to come on and ex- and tell us exactly how it works because I'll admit I'm not really sure what it's going to mean for people in this province there are lots of calculators out there to use uh, whether you're a newcomer do you need to, oh here's the one okay you don't need to apply to receive payment for the no, they call it CAIP. So what is CAIP? The Climate Action Incentive Payment. Okay, so that's the carbon tax. You don't need to apply to receive the payment from 
carbon tax issue, the, the incentive program. Canada Revenue Agency will determine your eligibility when you file your income tax and benefit return and will send you payments if you're entitled to them. So very much like GST. When you go ahead and file your taxes, it's evaluated whether or not you are qualifying for that. So in order to continue receiving your carbon tax rebates, you, your spouse, or common law partner, if applicable, must continue to file your income tax and benefit return every year. So it's as simple as that. You file your taxes and then you're deemed eligible for the refund if you are indeed. Okay. Yep. So you have to wait till the income tax is done this year before you get your rebate. Yeah, and so there's not going to be any in- implications until April, I think, where we're going to see the two cent hike uh, on gas. Now, here, here further, this is why I'm a little bit confused about it. So it says, how much can you expect to receive? Okay, but the, for the provinces that are on the federal plan, the numbers are different. Say for individuals, in Ontario, 373, Manitoba, 416, Saskatchewan, 550, Alberta, 539, and very similar differences when you talk about, for instance, uh, Per child. Per child in Ontario, $93. In Manitoba, 104 In Saskatchewan, 138 In Alberta, 135 So that's why I'm still confused exactly how it's going to work here, what the numbers will be specifically, because they're different everywhere. Okay. I was just under the understanding. To me, I thought we were supposed to get it this month, or January month, right? But anyway, I didn't know then if, if, if it's been scrapped or what, right? Yeah, and there's an email uh, comes, and this is something that, again, adds to the confusion. So on your 2022 income tax, there's boxes you can tick if you live outside the Avalon Peninsula versus inside. There's some thought that there might be places in the province that don't get a rebate. I can't confirm that. Okay. But what I'm going to need to do, and maybe myself and Dave Williams can put our head together and get someone to come on, and not a politician, someone to come on and tell us exactly how it works, exactly what eligibility means, and whether or not there's going to be parts of the province left on the outside looking in. So I'll work on that pro- particular guest, and I'm telling you, it won't be a politician, it'll be someone else. Okay, Patty, thanks for that. Thanks, Carol. All right, Jane, bye-bye. Take care, bye-bye. Bye. Uh, and so another email on the same issue, uh, this one's from Donna. Okay, so this is from Canada Drives. I actually have that website, so I will get into it a little further. But, you know, while I'm trying to figure it out, and the provinces that are on the federal scheme and all getting different returns or rebates, then, so I guess, Dave, let's try to figure out, maybe someone in, maybe Trevor Tome or someone out in Alberta to help us understand exactly what's coming to town. Then we'll have to get someone locally to figure out exactly how it's going to work here. Will it be comparable to Ontario, Saskatchewan, Alberta, Nova Scotia, wherever? Line one, Kevin, you're on the year. Good morning, Matty. How are you? Not too bad, you? Oh, not bad, sir. Uh, yeah, that's a bit of a kerfuffle, isn't it, uh, that uh, carbon tax? But, uh, it is, yeah. And, and uh, one thing about it, I mean, if, there, if uh, Reagan and them were saying you're getting back uh, what you're paying in, if not more, well, why even bother? Why not just let us keep what we got? What's the difference? Well, the, the thought about pressure points and market pressures, you know, will indeed encourage people to make some different choices, whether it be with different sources of heat in your home or the different type of vehicles you drive and all those types of things. But I get it. I've never really understood why it is structured the way it is. Emissions in the country have gone up, maybe not as much as they would have with the population growth. But again, I know why the carbon tax has been the favorite of just about every political party at some point in time. Now, of course, we talk about this more about the political issue versus the policy issues, but that's nature of the beast too, isn't it? Oh, it is. 
so, sir, uh, and, and that's not why I called you, though, uh, and I won't be, I will be quick. I was going to say I won't be long. But uh, what about truckers and people like that? Now, I'm not one myself, but, I mean, them guys are going to be paying extra, so will they get extra back, which they should? I'm not saying they shouldn't, but they should get extra back. And if they do get it back, well, then costs will be passed down to the consumer because now they're not paying extra for their fuel because they're getting it returned, so that shouldn't come on to the cost of the goods. But anyway, that's that's just something I just thought about. But uh, having said that, uh, to get to the point why, where I called you, was how long ago was it that Fury came out and said they were going to uh, release the uh, how the public utilities do their uh, adjustments? Yeah, I don't know. The only person I've heard speak to that was Minister Studley. Uh, but I suppose when a minister says it, it also comes indirectly from the Premier. But it's been a while. And I don't think I've seen any change in the way we get information from the PUB regarding price adjustments. It's basically the same thing every time. Uh, market circumstances, uh, blah, blah, blah. So the, the one point that, that I keep going back to on that front is, even if I know the recipe, it doesn't make the cake taste any better if we're going to have more and more coffee associated with heating my home or filling up my rigs but yeah i'm still waiting for it to come too yeah it's it's you know it's more on the side of accountability instead of just wondering you know they're going willy-nilly with whatever i mean you're you're publicly funded and everything else so uh, we have a right to know what yeah, of course process and what, what formula you're using to, to come up with this so I'm just wondering, you know, you, they said it was going to happen, so is there any process on it, anything coming out? Not that you're aware of. Well, no, we haven't heard anything just, uh, well, ever since we were just told there will be uh, a more transparent process coming from the PUB where they tell us exactly how they arrived at their decision versus very vague references to the price of New York jet and how that impacts home heating fuels and the winter blend or anything else. So I don't know. I'd certainly love to know. The biggest question that I have is... How are we so different from everywhere else in the country? I know there's going to be issues regarding our geography and the importation and distribution of the fuels. I, I get some of that, but, you know, do we use the exact same formula? Let's just pick an Atlantic province, Nova Scotia. Do we use the same formula as they do in Nova Scotia? And if not, why not? Exactly. I agree with you 100%. You know, you got you got to come across as fair with this and, and uh, make everything right for everybody. Uh, again, I don't know why there are any taxes on our fuel anyway. It should be uh, an essential service as far as I'm concerned. You look at lab now, 45, 50 below. Man, oh man. I mean, without that, you're going to die. I, I really do think there should be tax exemptions on home heating fuels. I know that dries up a revenue stream, but we're at the point now that if you factor in every single thing people are dealing with, their insurance premiums and the price of groceries and everything else that we touch, you cannot change your behavior when it comes to heating your home. You, you just can't do it. Now, you can do certain things where you can do upgrades to your insulation and windows and stuff, but that all comes with an upfront cost. And, you know, they're very smart things to do. But not everyone has access to that kind of capital to do those renovations all in one fell swoop. You might be able to do a couple of windows this year, maybe a bit of insulation next year. All the while, the winter months haven't stopped. The cold hasn't ceased. So uh, whatever kind of taxes on home heating fuels, maybe even if it's an income threshold measure, 
where folks earning X will get a, a break on home heating fuels on, in the tax world. I don't know, but I do know that there's folks out there who are very cognizant of how warm they keep their home because they know that they can't afford to go back to the well and get another full tank with the temperature uh, conveniently and uh, comfortably set at 18 or 18 and a half on these cold windy winter days so i don't think a carbon tax on home heating fuels is a good idea at all oh no i agree 100 percent, sir i won't take up no more of your time you have a great day and keep up the good work thanks kevin Okay. Stay in touch. Bye-bye. Uh, helpful email from listener, and we really appreciate it. Newfoundland and Labrador residents will get their first climate action incentive checks in July because the first implication of the carbon tax doesn't happen until April in this province. Okay, so you get your first climate action incentive check in July. Individual adults will receive quarterly payments of $164 with an additional $82 if a second adult lives in the home. Households will also get $41 for each child who lives in the home, vastly less than other provinces, meaning a family four will get annual payments of $1,312. Thank you to this particular lady for sending me that info. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go line number two. Stephen, you're on the air. Good morning, Patrick. How are you this morning? I'm doing okay. Thank you. How about you? Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Good. It's a glorious morning, sir, and I want to thank you very much for accepting my call. No problem. What's on your I, mind? I just want I just want to uh, make a comment on the coronavirus. I understand from uh, NTV that the coronavirus is still killing people today. Mm -hmm. And that there are clergymen out there and there are Christians who will not take this coronavirus shot because they believe that it to be the mark of the beast. Well, there's lots of people unwilling to take the vaccine, religious or otherwise. Yep. No, I'm just making a comment on it now from the scriptural point of view. I am not a theologian, a Bible scholar. I'm not an ordained clergyman. I want to tell you something, Patrick. Okay. I went and I took the corona shot twice. According to my scripture... The coronavirus, when you take the mark of the beast, you take a mark in your right hand or in your forehead. When I took my shot for the coronavirus, I took it twice, I took it in my shoulder. Yeah, that's where they administer it, yep. Yeah, that's where I administered to it. Twice is mentioned in the scripture about this mark of the beast being in your right hand and in your forehead. When I went and took it, I received my shot in the shoulder. If they had to took out the needle and was going to give me a shot in the right hand or in the forehead, I would have certainly questioned that. So there are clergymen who are instilling this kind of stuff into their congregations, and there are Christians believing it that this coronavirus injections that you received is the mark of the beast, which is completely false. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really have much to say about that. But I, I don't know whether or not they take the same stance with other 
medical interventions or other vaccines? Like, I don't know. The story has been so difficult. I mean, I thought for the longest while there would never be anything more difficult to talk about than Muskrat Falls until the vaccine. And it's yeah. it's pretty unmanageable conversation. You know, people will do as they see fit. There's no mandates in place anymore. So if you don't want it, don't get it. If you want to go get it. So I'm not even really sure what to say about COVID vaccinations anymore. No, uh, I just uh, hear uh, some Christians say that they don't take it because they believe it to be the mark of the beast. But if you uh, line it up with scripture and use common sense, you will see that it's a mark. The mark of the beast is a mark in the hand, right hand or the forehead. When I received my Corona shots with shoulder, when I received my flu shot with shoulder, there was nobody going injecting anything in my right hand or forehead. No, and that's a good thing. If anyone comes at me with a needle to the forehead, I'm not going to take it anyway. I don't care what it is. No, twice this mark is mentioned. Is marked in Revelation. Is mentioned in Revelation 13. Is mentioned in Revelation 14 about taking it in the right hand or the forehead. Got it. Yeah. Amen. I took it in the shoulder. So therefore, it's certainly not what some people claim it to be. And fair enough. I mean, I don't know why some of those conversations uh, happen and who believes it or who doesn't, but it's all been a real mess. I can tell you that much. Yeah, well, when when Harding clergy or whoever they are get in the pulpits and steer more fear into their congregations than what's needed, telling them don't go this because it's the mark of the beast if you take this you won't be able to buy or sell but that's not today you can go to Sobeys if you got the injection or if you don't have the COVID injection you can still buy your groceries you can still buy the fuel for your car you can still purchase whatever you want but it, it, the only ones according to scripture that can buy or sell is those who have received the mark of the beast yeah okay the mark of the beast so yeah okay whatever yeah no I'm just uh, making a comment from the scriptural point of view and I hope that it's a benefit to some people because I know that fear is being instilled into the people and uh, you know what happened people start to worry and everything else right and I just want to make this point that uh, from my point of view and I want to thank you very much for receiving my call and letting me speak to your audience this morning. Appreciate the time, Stephen. Take good care of yourself. God bless you, brother. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Uh, let's keep rolling here. Line number four, say good morning to Provincial Coordinator, National Board Member of the Canadian Council of the Blind, and that is Shane Cashin. Hi, Shane. You're on the air. How are you doing, Patty? Doing excellent. How are you doing? Wow, that was a heavy uh, previous call there, but anyway, <laughs> on a much lighter note, um, I want to talk about White Cane. Um, to be honest with you, I didn't have a lot prepared. Uh, but, however, something came in last night courtesy of Lion Brad Moss, and I wanted to bring it to your attention. And that is that the town of Portugal Cove, St. Phillips, through the Lions Club down there, has proclaimed White Cane Week for next week. Uh, he, so they were, I was pulling, basically burning count both ends last night, couldn't sleep, and I got the email, and I'm so happy to see that White Cane Week has been recognized uh, down in the town of Portugal Cove, St. Phillips. Um, so anyway, I got. To, I got so that. what are they doing to recognize it, Shane? Well, basically, they proclaim the week, similar to what the government has done uh, for uh, for us uh, next week. They're they proclaim it next week as White Cane Week, 
and uh, so has the uh, provincial government. I'm working on St. John's and Mount Pearl as we speak. Uh, and so basically they're recognizing White Cane um, as a week to recognize the contributions of what blind and visually impaired have contributed to our communities and, and how um, blindness and being visually impaired is, is, is not a bad thing. It, it basically focuses on what we can do uh, versus, you know, the old stereotypes of what we couldn't do. So, like, what's the message that people need to understand? Because, I mean, I know I know people that have uh, reduced vision, and I know a, a couple of blind people, and I actually had Don Connolly on the show yesterday, for instance, with reduced visibility. So what are some of these myths or the stigmas out there about what blind can and cannot do and their contributions to community? You know much more about it than I do. Well, I mean, uh, you've always been there for us, so I, I, I think you can pretty much... Uh, could write a big long thesaurus, uh, you know, um, on this because that you're well versed on. But I will say, talk about myths uh, that, well, first of all, that people who are blind, vision impaired, have very limited lives. Uh, that we don't, that basically we're in the house and we don't do nothing. We there's 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 very little quality of life. Um, you know, I mean, you can use Don as an example. Um, who I I'm good friends with Don Conley and. Um, anyone who's seen Don knows that his quality of life is so good, and, you know, and he just gets out there and does everything he can. Uh, you know, I mean, you've known me for 13 years, and I mean, my quality of life is pretty good. I've got, you know, I'm gainfully employed. You know, I have a wife and I have a 15-year-old son. Uh, you know, I go through all the same things that everybody else does. And, I mean, Karen was on with Linda Swain yesterday. Fantastic job there. And, I mean, there's another example. So, you know, there's the three of us right there that are defying the stereotypes and saying, no, not on our watch. Uh, we are going to go out and uh, and live our lives to the best of our abilities. Of course. And, I mean, the first time I met you was outside of your day job. You were DJing, and you were part of the entertainment at an event. I can't remember exactly what the event was. That, so That was March 18th, 2010, I believe. Was okay. that be? Yeah, it was a very rainy night, if, if I recall. And I remember, I remember you come down to me, and it was just when you were doing a night uh, show. And you said to me, uh, good to meet you. And I said, and I said to you then, I'm, and I'm glad that you kept to it to that what I said I said keep it real and you still do that even 13 years after the fact I imagine it's been a long time hey yeah yeah I mean of course you know Don comes on to promote a variety of uh, society, uh, social uh, socialization possibilities or opportunities whether it be sports or otherwise and then yes it's good on the cove to recognize white cane week and talking about people who are you know the differences between us, sometimes we exaggerate what they really mean. And people focus on the differences versus the similarities, which if we did that, even took that minor shift of uh, thought process about how we look at others, we'd remember and recognize that we're a lot more similar than we are different. And that would make you know a little bit more cohesion out there because we all share very similar goals and wants and dreams in this world. And it doesn't matter if you are fully or partially blind, have 20-20 vision, have a mobility issue, or whatever the case may be, because we focus on the differences just all the time. It's people's go-to for more often than not. You know, the old judge the book by its cover kind of stuff. Us versus them. 
you know, the other people. And I, w- I will say, I mean, um, <laughs> that was so powerful what you just said. Absolutely right. And you know what? Everybody in their life has something they have to deal with. The difference between myself and many other people is that mine is on a piece of paper that says I have this amount of vision and therefore these are, these are the resulting things that come up. A lot of people have their own, as they say, crosses the bear every day, mental health that's totally unseen, and so many other things, anxieties, uh, you know, relationship issues, whatever. We all have our we all have our, our battles to deal with every day. With mine, with Don's, with Karen's, and so many others, we have a name for it, and we have a classification for it. But each person who goes through their lives with their own struggles, um, it, it can be a challenging uh, task uh, to be had. So we all have to to figure out what the similarities are versus the differences. And I think this in this day and age, uh, there's too many of us versus them. You see that in politics. Oh, God, yes, we do. And, uh, you know, on and on and on. But I also wanted to say, before I let you go or you let me go, okay. uh, I wanted to say, of course, Sunday night at Boston Pizza, we do have uh, um, the Dunning in the Dark. Of course, that's being spearheaded by uh, President Karen. And... Um, and so uh, she and we are really excited about that. So you put on the blindfold and you try to eat um, as well. And, of course, I'd like to say again, thank you to the Lions. we got the crib coming up now next uh, Tuesday evening with the St. John's Lions. And um, there's a, a lady out there. Her name's Maureen. And um, <laughs> I am looking forward to uh, seeing the uh, uh, her when she wins. And the I know it's not the best thing, but... The profoundly late uh, winning victory dance that she does uh, and the look over of Lyme Pet Percy's face of, of indignation of all the swears coming out of her. So that is something I, I look forward to every year. So uh, Maureen, if you're out there, hi, Maureen. Uh, she's a sweetheart. So anyway, that's that's all I have to say. Thank you so much. We have the proclamation on Monday at uh, Government House with uh, LG uh, Judy Foote. Thank you. You're always welcome, Shane. Thanks, buddy. Always. Take care. Bye-bye. Shane Cashin. He's the Provincial Coordinator, Canadian Council for the Blind. Let's go ahead and take a break for the news. When we come back, as promised, the Mayor Bonavista, John Norman in the queue. Then you. Don't go away. Your VOCM Mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number six and say good morning to the Mayor Bonavista. That's John Norman. Mayor Norman, you're on the air. Hello, thank you for having me. Happy to have you on the show again this morning, sir. So we, you know, we've heard like, for instance, on Bell Island with their grand seduction to try to lure a doctor to set up shop on the island itself. And now your community taking the bull by the horns to try to attract a doctor or doctors. What are you doing? Well, we're backed into a corner and uh, we have physicians. We have physicians that actually have moved into Bonavista. One in the last year has purchased a house. But unfortunately, uh, while the spouse of that physician is living in the community, in their house, she is commuting out of province to work because of the workload versus the compensation in Bonavista. So the town is stepping in, and we are asking the government, the health department, to match what we are offering. Which is what? We have not yet finalized, but it would be in the tens of thousands of dollars per physician, plus a service building lot that is in the sixty dollars to $70,000 range for $1. I would imagine. So when you float this stuff amongst your fellow members of council 
and the general public, when people feel like they're back in the back into a corner, not only does it present an opportunity to think outside the box, but it's to take one on the chin, so to speak, financially to secure what is probably the most important thing in any community is access to healthcare. It is the most important thing. Citizens are very upset, very nervous. We have a hospital here that serves over 8,000 people. And the bottom line is this is not good enough. Uh, I'm, I'm not further listening to category A versus category B. Yeah, right. Category B physicians are paid less. We are not category B citizens of this province. That entire labeling uh, protocol doesn't make a whole, whole lot of sense to me. Anyway, I'm not even sure what, what qualifies for one of those particular labels. So the real-life implication for people who live in the community is, of course, very worrying. We had a caller earlier, Sharon, who's a retired nurse, talking about you know desperate road conditions one night and the ambulance having to struggle through very deep snow and the problems that that presents. Are you seeing people actually leave Bonavista because of health care? They're, they're saying that's the reason? Yes. Yes, yes. We have, we have, as a municipal council, already calculated seven people that have left the community since the beginning of December based on health care. We are a community that have been fighting, as you know, for years and finally stabilizing and growing, showing success, having a lot of positive news stories coming out of Bonavista. All of that is being undermined. And the safety and health of the citizens of Bonavista and all our surrounding area, the Bonavista region, we're now at risk. Someone also mentioned uh, a curious point on healthcare and access to healthcare. Is you know your community has done a great job, and we'll get to some heritage-related matters in a minute. But you know when people consider where to make their vacation stops, I don't know if I've already even gone down this road with you know making sure there's access to health healthcare that can qualify inside my travel insurance, what have you. But do you think that plays a role? It absolutely does. Uh, right now, uh, not only do we have a closed ER, but we have a redirected uh, chemo unit. We have a redirected dialysis unit this week. Staff at the hospital in Bonavista can tell you, especially during spring, summer, and fall months, we have visitors that uh, come in uh, that avail of these services that schedule well in advance dialysis while they're traveling. They can only go in areas where this is offered, chemo scheduled in advance. And besides the over 8,000 people this serves on a year-round, day-to-day basis, then there are the tens and tens and tens of thousands of people that every spring, summer, and fall come to our region, and so many of those show up in the ER with broken bones, with heart attacks, with other complications. This is, this is not good for really anybody. And what is most frustrating is the money and time, human resources, that are put into Band-Aid solutions. Right now, I want to make it very clear that there seems to be money available to pay for locum physicians to come in from out of province to cover short shifts and stints at our ER, flights, hotels, rent-a-cars, etc. But there is not money to increase the compensation for physicians living and trying to work in Newfoundland in this system to the to the amount of literally hundreds of dollars a shift while we can fly them in from across the country. I find that ridiculous. It is ridiculous. And, of course, this is not, you know, the perfect or ideal scenario, but Sharon described just the trip to Clarenville. You know, when the minister responsible for the highways talks about snow clearing, they'll say, well, you know, the plows will be operating from this hour to this hour, taken off the road if there's a really terrible weather. 
And then, of course, the plows will be there if emergency services are required. But, of course, the lack of plows might lead to emergencies. So what level of communication do you have between the municipality and that department to ensure that if there's a need to make your way to Clarenville in the middle of the night, in the middle of the storm, that the roads will be clear and safe? This has been raised. This has been raised to Eastern Health at the executive level. We have talked about helicopters. I don't know how that will fare if it's a 120-kilometer-hour wind, wind a blizzard, or a fall hurricane, or what have you. But we have discussed it. Everyone should know in the health authority, in the health department, the premier's office. We've all had meetings with them. It's an hour and a half on a sunny day. It is well more than that on a stormy day, an icy day, a snowy day. And this is not a small little village in the middle of nowhere where we haven't really had major health care coverage in the past. This is the first time in over 150 years that the over 8,000 people living in our area have no access to emergency care. This is an absolute emergency and must be solved. Mayor Norman, anything else you want to say on the health care front? Because I have another couple of questions for you. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you know, here in this city, we don't do a very good job of preserving heritage, whether it be buildings or otherwise. You know, a lot, you know, it's one thing to have the jelly bean row colorings, and that's lovely, but a lot of really important heritage buildings have gone by the wayside, been torn down, destroyed by fire or otherwise, including Baird College, Baird Cottage recently. When you go to Bonavista, it has a very unique, distinct flair of heritage preservation. Uh, what was the driving force behind that, and what do you think the positive outcomes are because of what you've done in that community? Well, that is one of the top things besides people's safety that is going through my mind every day. It is incredibly demoralizing for many of us, like me and many other volunteers, community and regional leaders. We have spent not years, but decades safeguarding and developing the unique built landscape and culture, arts and heritage of the Bonavista Peninsula to such a success level that we are now one of the darlings of the province when it comes to tourism. We show up in academic articles, media releases across the country and globally as a rural economic success story. And it is being undermined. So it is very disheartening that we've spent all of this time safeguarding and trying to enhance community vitality through our unique assets, investing private money, public money. And now here we are. We can attract everybody from almost every profession, it seems, based on the amazing work that volunteers and community leaders have done here. But it seems we we can't get the physicians worked out. And that is really unfortunate because I, too, think they would love to live in the Bonavista area and be a part of all the positive things that are happening here. It's a beautiful community. I mean, just visually striking many parts of Bonavista. And something else I learned when I was doing some volunteer work uh, with CSE is that it's not just Bonavista as a standalone. There's been a lot of collaboration, especially on the volunteer front. I can't remember the uh, actual term they used to refer to that joining of, I think it's five different communities and all the volunteer forces and horsepower they bring to bear. But there's something there's something different about what goes on in the Bonavista Peninsula on that front. So when we look at that collaboration, being a mayor, and uh, I would imagine have attended many MNL meetings, the whole thought about county systems and regionalization, cooperation or collaboration, there's a way it can work in my mind, not the same way everywhere in the province, but what are your thoughts on that stuff? Absolutely, yes. I've att- attended a lot of uh, M&L meetings. I've attended a lot of meetings on almost every subject under the sun, it seems, lately. And uh, 
there is room for collaboration, and it's actually something we're discussing with our surrounding municipalities on the subject of health care. Uh, as you referenced at the top of the story, we're looking at compensation and what we can offer. We're also now beginning to reach out to surrounding municipalities to see what we can do in partnership. We're not the only community on the peninsula. We may be the largest, but there are others. And this is, like many other issues, a regional issue. So we have to approach it together. Yeah, I mean, I know there's some pushback coming, especially from folks who were left on the outside looking in at the working groups doing this initial piece of work on regionalization, notably the uh, LSDs. And I understand that. If you weren't involved, then you think that, you know, you've been alienated for a reason and there's maybe something uh, unfair coming down the pike. But we'll see where that goes because I think that's the next bit of business that the government either has to take action or just drop it because no sweat, no sense having it in limbo and unanswered questions because you know what happens as well as I do. When you don't get answers to legitimate fair questions, worst case scenario presents itself in your mind and then all of a sudden you become unwilling to even entertain the conversation, which is a, we're quickly approaching that stage. Uh, anything else you'd like to offer this morning, Mayor Norman, before we say goodbye? No, I think, uh, I think that's it, and I really hope we can resolve this situation and come to some long-term solutions very soon. The town of Bonavista and the, and the region is ready to work with whoever wants to work with us. Appreciate the time. Stay in touch, sir. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take, take care. Bye-bye. It's uh, John Norman. The mayor of Bonavista, you know, it does probably take not only at the provincial government level and the senior bureaucrats or the minister responsible, and in this case we're talking health care, to come up with incentives and compensation packages and adjustments to attract any healthcare professional to one part of the province or another. But I guess, you know, as been displayed on Belle Island, as being displayed in Bonavista, there's a role for municipalities to play as well. So I'm sure whether it be work between Mayor Norman and Dr. Megan Hayes or whoever else, that an attractive package to have someone move to and to stay in Bonavista should be readily available. But then Mr. Or Mayor Norman gets down to one of the brass tacks, which makes it a bit more complicated than we consider, is that the doctor's there, but the spouse, the partner, is traveling or commuting for work. So when you try to put together a package, it's got to be all-inclusive, doesn't it? It's got to be opportunities for your partner or your spouse. It's got to be amenities and opportunities for your children if you have them. So there's so many different things to consider, which is, I guess, which makes things like an exit interview, uh, an exit interview absolutely paramount. To understand why someone's leaving is an opportunity to fill those gaps so that the next person you're able to attract doesn't have the same reason to leave in the future. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, still a bit of show left to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Well, we had a caller not long ago talking about what the carbon tax implications will be in this province. So we have basic understanding about no need to apply because of your filed income tax returns, what have you. But the disconnect between how different provinces on the federal scheme receive different amounts, and we read out, you know, one lady was kind enough to send me along some uh, provincial information here about what we can anticipate in this province for rebates or the incentive program. But just try to boil it down to how it actually works, what impact it has had, whether it be on individuals, homeowners, whether you heat your home with fuel, what the impact has been on the trucking industry, all of those types of things. Uh, myself and Dave have, well, Dave, has thrown out an invite to a person we've had on the show before. I won't throw his uh, name under the bus <laughs> at this moment in time to see if he responds, but he's in Alberta. 
And so they have lived experience with what the carbon tax, the federal carbon tax looks like. So maybe we can try to glean a bit more information and be better informed as to what's coming through town. And we do know that the first incentive rebate checks will not be flowing to people in this province until July. So I don't know if we're going to be able to get this person to, or whether or not it's in his uh, ballywick to talk about whether or not it's the right thing to do, the right approach when we talk about curbing emissions or otherwise, just basic understanding of how it's going to work here. Because remember, the province negotiated a bilateral deal with the federal government to have our own provincial carbon tax. And it was associated with fuels, but not home heating fuels. And that's the exemption that the province is still looking for from the federal government. It doesn't look like it's going to happen, but that will be a major league concern. You know, when you hear the politicians talk about it, and the change doesn't happen until April, where we see an additional couple of cents on a liter of gasoline, for instance, but the thought that it's going to triple over the next eight years, which is absolutely true, sometimes we just hear that the carbon tax is tripling, and some people think that means in April the carbon tax will be tripled, because at this moment in time, where are we, about 11 cents on a liter of gasoline? So I've got people coming up to me all the time via email in particular saying, am I led to believe now that that 11 cents is going to be 33 cents in April? The short answer is no. But that worry is absolutely out there. And whether or not we're going to see an exemption on home heating fuels regarding carbon tax remains to be seen, but it doesn't look good. So we'll see if we can get that particular guest who's well-informed and knows exactly what the implications are and certainly has lived it as a resident of the province of Alberta. So we will get to that for sure. So if you want to pepper me with some questions that I can put to this fellow, then I'm happy to take that on as well. Let's go ahead and take a little check-in on the Twitter feed before we run out of time. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. And, of course, I'm being told once again I'm going to hang at the most at the upcoming Nuremberg trials. That's very helpful. Thanks for that. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. Uh, what are we at out there, Dave? Oh, quick one. Someone also asked me uh, in an email, pardon me, as to why I didn't talk about any of the issues in the headlines today regarding crimes. Because a couple of days ago it was Placentia and their localized worries. And then, of course, it's always in the news regarding town. But I would suggest it's right around the province where people are seeing a spike in crime. The RNC are reporting it. The ICMP are reporting it. And this morning the headline in the community in the headline is Carbonair. And there was a vape shop that had three break-ins in, I think it's the last 10 months. The business has been absolutely destroyed. They were unable to secure an insurance premium they could afford, and so now, consequently, because of these criminals and the vandalism and the destroying of their property and their business, they're closing the door. They say the renovations and the all the money spent to bring it back to its past glory as an operating business would be in six figures, and they can't afford it. So we are seeing the spike, and we're happy to talk about those types of things, and hopefully able to talk about them not through the lens of fear, but through the lens of reality and what could and should be done. Also, we've hopefully got someone representing the Faculty Association at MUN coming on tomorrow. There's a lot of misinformation and a lot of confusion surrounding this strike, the motivation for and what they're actually hoping for, what time frame can that can be achieved. So maybe we'll get to that again tomorrow, hopefully so. All right, good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.